How do you know when to worry about your struggling stars? We'll talk about that and more with Steve Gardner, USA Today Senior Fantasy Editor, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 13th. It's show number 24 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We will talk with Steve Gardner, USA Today's senior fantasy editor, about waiver wire pickups, struggling pitchers and other struggling stars, his studs and duds, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at some young building blocks, a possible new save source in Cincinnati, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson will look at big changes in Angels country, a six-man rotation in Houston, a shuffle in the Yankees bullpen, and much more. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Dodgers left-handed pitching prospect Julio Urias. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at how long Chase Headley can stay in the Yankees lineup and speculates on a changing of the guard in L.A. In our frequent flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at Tampa first baseman Steve Pierce and Colorado right-handed starter Tyler Chatwood. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at a Saturday National League game with Giants right-hander Jake Peavy facing Arizona lefty Patrick Corbin in Phoenix, a Sunday American League game featuring Angel Southpaw Hector Santiago in Seattle against righty King Felix Hernandez and two other weekend matchups, and in Master Notes, I'll be talking about pitchers in the season that ended on April 30th. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The 1-1, swing and a drive to deep left field. It's got a chance. Upton going back. It's going to go. Home run, Bartolo Colon. Repeating, home run, Bartolo Colon. Seven-line army in right field might tear this ballpark down. Colon carried his bat with him until he was about 10 feet from first base. He's taking the slowest home run trot you've ever seen. He just got to Tim Tuffle, the third base coach. He is approaching home plate. He touches home plate with his first major league home run. And they are going to give him a silent treatment in the dugout. They have vacated. The Mets have left the building. Bartolo Colon is the loneliest man in San Diego as he reaches the Mets dugout after hitting a home run and there's nobody there to greet him. And now here they come up the dugout steps. Wow. And Syndergaard hits one in the air in a deep right center. Back goes Queen to the warning track. Back at the wall. It's out of here. Noah Syndergaard's second major league home run. He swings and flies one to deep center field. Back goes Peterson near the wall. It's out of here! Noah Syndergaard with his second home run of the night. A three-run shot. Syndergaard with a two-home run game. Wow, those Mets pitchers are muscling up with the bat. We got to talk some baseball. (music) 
And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Nick, before we get started looking at the news and stories out of the National League, do you think we should be picking up Mets starting pitchers and adding them to our batting lineups? Well, you know, I don't know. We've got, uh, what, three home runs out of Mets pitchers in the last week, one from Cologne, two from Syndergaard. You know, I think if I were an opposing manager or an opposing general manager, I'd be investigating what the uh, Wets are doing with their pitchers in batting practice. I mean, you know, what's going on over there? Have they got some uh, kind of a kind of a uh, hitting magic going on in their in their batting practice that's getting these uh, pitchers fired up? But it's us. Uh, it's certainly something to think about. You know, uh, the Cologne home run, of course, is the bigger surprise of the two. He's never hit one in however many years he's been in the big leagues—fifteen years or something like that. And then later on in the week, uh, Syndergaard, of course, had a pair of home runs. And uh, afterwards, somebody asked him how come he's all of a sudden showing this power, and he said he was just trying to uh, be the kind of man that Bartolo is. That's right. So now what happens? Does, uh, does Matt Harvey hit three home runs in a game? Well, we'll have to watch and see. The pressure's definitely on Matt Harvey and the other members of the of the Mets as well. Uh, Nick, let's start in the Cincinnati bullpen. Doug Dennis wrote a quite humorous look at some bullpens, and the Cincinnati bullpen, he said, was like a dumpster fire but not only that, a dumpster fire full of radioactive burning tires, <laughs> which seems like a pretty good way to describe it. They've had one closer after another. They keep sending them down to the miners after they flop. And the, the latest claimant might be Tony Singrani, uh, formerly a starting pitcher for the Reds, got two saves in the last couple of days. Yeah, so Tony Singrani got two saves. I'm not sure uh, they were really uh, uh, great saves, but... Um uh, he did get two, and so that may make him a kind of a hot commodity. Uh, but but Doug, Doug's right. The bullpen in Cincinnati is really a mess. And, and I would not say that Tony Singrani is somebody you want to go jump on at the moment. If you look at the uh, at the peripherals, and behind those two saves, we've got a 4.95 expected during run average, 5.5 walks per nine innings, uh, a 1.4 command, and a BPV of a whopping two. So this clearly is not a guy who's going to catch fire and do a great job as a closer. Uh, and probably is going to even in his uh, if he gets a few more opportunities, put so many guys on base that the manager has a heart attack before he can get things straightened out. So I don't think Singrani is going to be in there long as a closer, and I don't think he's someone you want to jump on for uh, in the ninth inning in Cincinnati. Right now, Singrani, uh, according to Tom Kephart of BaseballHQ.com, who covered uh, Singrani's save uh, earlier in the in the week is going to be part of a late-inning committee that includes Ross Ohlendorf and Blake Wood. I think Ohlendorf, Doug Dennis said, is the only guy who has base performance value that you'd even consider, and even at that, he's not that good. So that they're, 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 they're really struggling around here. But let me be the devil's advocate here for a second, Nick. Being a closer and getting saves isn't that hard. Well, maybe not, you know. I mean, maybe for, for us in, in the short term, uh, being able to get uh, to get saves if you can get the ball over the plate and have a decent fastball and get some guys out maybe not too bad. Let's go back to Olendorf for a minute. Olendorf's BPV right now is 138, so he looks like a guy that that might have something to do and a 10.8 DOM uh, rating. So if you're going to fish for saves in the uh, in the Cincinnati pen, Olendorf's probably the guy to look at. Although a 5.40 earned run average at the moment, so he's had his struggles as well. 
Yeah, I'm I'm not arguing that anybody in this bullpen is better than anybody else. They all look pretty brutal, and Doug Dennis's advice and your advice is to just steer clear until they finally find somebody who can, A, get the ball over the plate. They all walk a ton of guys. They don't strike out that many. He's on his list of uh, potential candidates. I think they all had command ratios, that is, strikeout to walks, way under two. And Tony Singrani's one of them. He's at 1.4 strikeouts for every walk. For a closer, we like to see, well, probably three or three or greater and this is just not a, a good skill set no it's not a good skill set at all and I, I don't think the answer is currently in the Cincinnati bullpen maybe they'll uh, maybe they'll trade for someone maybe they'll find somebody in the minors that can do something but uh, I don't think the answer is currently there Nick one of our favorite columnists at baseballhq.com is Stephen Nick Grandin in his batting buyer's guide this week he looks at players he calls young building blocks for 2016 players that'll be contributors this year but on into the future as well and one of the names that he mentioned in that column Miami second baseman Derek Dietrich Yeah Derek Dietrich is a, is kind of an interesting guy to take a look at right now I mean he's 26 years old so at a very good age and suddenly has a full-time gig in Miami at second base uh, before was kind of a third baseman outfielder and now he's moved into the middle infield and that may uh, the fact that he's got some pop in the middle infield may increase his value if you look at what Derek Drake is, is doing at the moment we're looking at a 319 batting average and 951 OPS in his first 72 at bats so not bad at all and what's really interesting is he's, he's currently posting the highest contact rate of his career that's been his struggle he's been had a contact rate around 75 percent now up to 81 percent in the early going uh, so put that with a, a 115 hard contact index and a 138 PX, and you've got a guy that could produce some, uh, you know, could produce some power out of the middle infield. And if you look right now, he's got two homers and 72 at bats. So you go, eh, I don't know. But back last season, 10 homers and 250 at bats. Double that into a 500 at bat season. You've got a, a 20 home run uh, player in the middle infield. So I think Derek Dick is some somebody definitely worth taking a look at at the moment. Derek Dietrich's kind of come out of nowhere a little bit in that Miami situation. He he got off to a really big start. I guess the question now is, can he sustain the pace that he set for himself? Well, you know, that's uh, that's certainly something to, uh, uh, to to be aware of. If you look at right now, we're looking at a 36% hit rate over the, the last uh, 38% for the season, 36% over the past month, and that may be a little bit high. Uh, so the hit rate may come down, the batting average might come down just a little bit, but uh, this is a guy that had a 31% hit rate last season. So, you know, it's, it's, he's not all that far above it. And the 284 expected batting average looks pretty good right now, as long as he's really stinging the ball with that 115 hard contact index. Yeah, I would have been more worried about the hit rate had he not been steadily building it. Uh, 2013, just 25% in a uh, 215 at-bat season, but then he raised it up to 27 the next year, 31, as you say, last year. I think 38 is a bit much of a jump for us to expect him to be able to sustain it, but even if he maintains it at 31%, which is pretty much league average, I think we could feel fairly comfortable that he, he could end up hitting 260, 265, and in today's environment, that's not bad. That's not bad at all, especially if he can get 20 home runs out of a 265 middle infielder. You know, that could be worth something. Stevens Column also looked at another Miami player as a young building block for this year and the future, and that's uh, outfielder Marcel Ozuna. He's been heating up recently, Nick. He has indeed. And, you know, here's a guy that, uh, that two years ago, Marcel Ozuna had a, a really breakout kind of season when he hit uh, 23 home runs, 85 RBIs, uh, and 565 at bats. And then last year kind of uh, went into a tailspin, got only 10 home runs for the season. But uh, right now, we're looking at Marcelo Zuna has a 295 batting average, six homers, 17 RBIs. 
It looks like the power he showed uh, two years ago is back uh, and looks as though that could be very, very real. So uh, Marcelo Zuna is certainly a guy that you've got to like. He's got a full-time role. Uh, he's only 25 years old and is showing some uh, some definite power. So I, a guy I really kind of like at the moment in that Miami lineup. The concern I have is that he's still un- well under 80% contact rate. I know that's fairly normal in today's baseball environment, but he, I'd be a little happier about his long-term benefit to me as an owner if he could push that contact rate up over 80%. Right now, 75 which is pretty consistent with his career. Yeah, I agree with you. If that contact rate could come up and a little better batting eye, 0.29 I, so he's not uh, being as patient perhaps at the plate as we'd like him to be. Uh, but uh, if those two things could get better, uh, then I think we could really see something out of Ozuna. The other thing that's, that's sort of interesting is you look at Marcelo Ozuna's speed, uh, an excellent speed index, but not not uh, giving, being given much opportunity on the base paths. So there may be some latent speed there that uh, if they ever begin letting him, letting him run, uh, could begin to show itself. Part of the problem, getting back to this uh, strikeout rate or contact rate of uh, below uh, 75% right now overall, he's actually doing much better against left-handers. He is above 80%. He's got a 1286 OPS this year. He's always had a good OPS against left-handers, but he really has always struggled against right-handers. He's slowly getting better. Uh, he's 358 last year for a slugging percentage, 426 this year, 646 OPS to 762. At 762, I think he's playable, but boy, if he could figure out right-handers, I think we'd really be onto something. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, here's a guy that, can, that absolutely mashes left-handers. If you can figure out the right-handers, as you said, and get that OPS up just a little bit, uh, he, he really would be onto something. We're talking about Stephen Nickrand's column on young building blocks for 2016 and beyond. He also did the same thing in his starting pitcher buyer's guide column, Nick. And one of the names on that list, Arizona starter Ruby De La Rosa. Yeah, Ruby De La Rosa is a guy that, you know, if you think back a few years, we liked Ruby De La Rosa when he was a prospect back in the American League with Boston, I think it was. And then he's gone to Arizona and always put up pretty good uh, good peripherals, uh, but never never really uh, done much. But you go back and look at his starts this season, uh, taking a look at, at, at the uh, – and, and go back and uh, click on at some place on Baseball HQ and look at, at all of the games he's pitched. This guy allowed six earned runs and a start on April the 7th, and he allowed four earned runs and a start on May the 4th. And, and beyond that, every start, two or fewer earned runs, um, been pitching pretty well. So maybe starting to kind of come into his own. He's 27 years old, right now a 3.93 ERA, a 3.21 XERA, 9.3 DOM, 3.5 command, 127 BPV, uh, velocity is at 94.6, which you, is, uh, so he's getting a good, good, uh, good fastball going, a 54% ground ball rate, a lot of things to like about Ruby De La Rosa. So, uh, at the moment, he's got to improve against left handers. Left handers, uh, give him, give him fits. And if he can improve against left handers, then I think we're really going to see something out of him. For me, the knock on Ruby De La Rosa so far is consistency. I was looking at that same PQS chart that you were looking at, and it is exciting to see a guy who has, uh, uh, I think he had three starts with no earned runs, a couple with only one earned run, 
And those are the kind of things that get your blood pumping. You know, this is a, a guy you think, boy, if I can latch onto this guy and get him on my roster, I could have a nice horse to ride here for a couple of years. And then you see some of these other ones that you mentioned, six earned runs, four earned runs. He's got more uh, disaster starts on the PQS scale than he has dominant starts. And sometimes his strikeouts are pretty low, two strikeouts a game, three strikeouts a game. Then all of a sudden, 10 strikeouts in a game, then four strikeouts in a game. You know what I mean, Nick? I'd like to see a guy who's been around the major leagues as long as he has develop a bit more of a consistent pattern rather than this all or nothing up and down kind of thing. Yeah, I agree with you. That's certainly been a problem with with Ruby De La Rosa. The strikeout thing has been, the the, the consistency has been an issue. Uh, In his last four Last four starts, we've got a PQS of three, a five, a zero, and a five. So kind of all over the place, but, but a guy who's capable of putting up an outstanding start. One of those five, one of those PQS fives actually came at Colorado when he went seven and a third and he's allowed only one earned run. So he can do it even in a difficult ballpark, which he certainly has in Arizona. Uh, so, and the, the home road splits aren't bad. It's the, uh, it's the right handed, left handed ones that you need to watch out for. Finally, Nick, uh, Stephen Matz. Uh, the starting pitcher for the Mets also made Steve Stephen Nickrand's column, but then there's some bad news. He's going to have a start skipped on Saturday, and uh, he's got some elbow issues. That's never good news when you're talking about pitchers. It's not. I mean, you know, this is a this is a guy that that I think we we all think if we look at Stephen Matz, that uh, here's a guy that really has the stuff to be uh, a number one pitcher. And I agree with Stephen that he certainly would be a with Stephen Nickrand that he certainly would be a a young building block. Uh, 2.86 ERA at the moment, uh, 142 BPV uh, in his first uh, his first uh, five starts. I mean six starts. I mean really really excellent numbers. But now we've got a uh, a little bit of an elbow issue, and this is a guy with a um, with an injury history. He's had Tommy John surgery. He's had he's had shoulder issues. So the question is, is he healthy now? And you know you've got to begin to wonder if the elbow is giving him problems. Uh, what do you do at this point? You say, Stephen Matz's owner calls you on the phone and says, hey, I'll give you Stephen Matz, you know, and what do you do at this point in the season? Uh, are you worried about that elbow given the injury history or do you do you bite? Boy, I have to tell you, if it were me, unless I was really in a position to gamble or he wasn't asking for much in the deal, I don't think I'd make that trade. I don't think I want Stephen Matz right now. Tommy John survivors, of course, we, we know that they are doing better and better at having careers after the surgery, but it's still a good indicator that a second surgery is coming and uh, after the first one. And then we have all of these other injuries. He's got shoulder trouble. I think last year he had a, a torn muscle in his back that, that caused him some problems and cost him some time. And when you have all of these injuries, Nick, as we've talked about before here on Baseball HQ Radio, there's sometimes a cascading effect. My shoulder hurts, so I'll alter my delivery. Now my elbow hurts. My elbow hurts, so I'll alter my delivery. Now my knee hurts, and so forth. And it seems like Stephen Matz is heading in that kind of direction. And for as a long-term play especially, I'm not so sure I like this. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, there's a, there's a maxim that we don't talk about frequently enough, perhaps, but that's been an HQ maxim for a long time. And that is chronically injured players don't suddenly get healthy. And so I think, you know, Stephen Matz is like, like a number of guys, uh, a good short-term play. But once the injuries uh, begin, begin kind of barking out at you, uh, he's a guy you really want to watch out for. Okay, Nick, I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks very much, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. 
Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's jump over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, PD. Good to be here. Last week we talked about Garrett Richards' uh, pending surgery just as that news was breaking, and since we last spoke, the Angels have had more injuries and made more changes. You cover the team regularly on your American League Westbeat at Playing Time tomorrow for BaseballHQ.com, and you're an Angels fan, so you've been writing and thinking about a lot of this stuff. What's been going on there the past week? Well, on the pitching front, the Angels acquired uh, Julius Chassin from the Braves for uh, a 23-year-old minor league project, and uh, as unaccustomed as I am to saying nice move Angels this year, I'm going to say that uh, right now. I mean, Chassin's never going to be a, a world beater. He's a, he's profiles as a, as a back-of-the-rotation uh, type. But if you look at his track record before injury set in, he's one of the few pitchers who've ever solved Coors Field. He put up three sub-four ERAs there, pitched very well. Uh, this is before injuries set in. Um, injuries have dogged him a little bit the last couple of years. But if you look at his peripherals this year, he's coming back to life. His ground ball rate is up. Um, his, his strikeouts are way up. His control has improved. His bottom line hasn't been great, but a lot of that was the result of one game where uh, uh, Atlanta left him in to, to absorb uh, an eight-run shellacking from the Mets. Um, I'm not, not at all... Uh, convinced that uh, Chassin is going to be a great fantasy find, but in terms of what the Angels need now, uh, competent pitchers to eat innings, he could be just that. Uh, bottom of the rotation fantasy guy for, for those uh, looking to, uh, to take a dip into the starting pitching pool. Jock, when I look at the Angels rotation, especially with Richards gone, it's like the entire thing is bottom of the rotation, guys. Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's that's the problem that they have. Uh, um, I guess you can make an argument, given how well he's pitched for most of the year until recently, Hector Santiago might be mid-rotation, but I won't make that argument. He's, he's out-pitched his peripherals for a long time. He's got a little more velocity this year. And then you look right down the list, and everybody is at best a number four, number five starter. They have Tyler Skaggs still rehabbing in uh, AAA, although he has been slowed by biceps tendonitis. We don't know when he's coming back. Um, this is a team that hitters are going to light up, likely for the rest of the season. New injury news, Andrelton Simmons, the shortstop whom they picked up to shore up some infield defense, is likely out for at least eight weeks. He's got a torn tendon in his thumb on his glove hand. He was diving for a ball in the hole, and sometimes when you're having a bad year as a team, these kind of things happen. He dives for the ball in the hole, tears a tendon in his glove thumb. He's going to be out for eight weeks. What do the Angels do to replace Andrelton Simmons? Well, they added uh, Brendan Ryan. He was uh, languishing in the Washington organization, obviously, with uh, not a lot of upside there in terms of playing time. And uh, Ryan is obviously a, a really good defender in the mode of Simmons, but he, he can't hit. He's, he's, he's got a two thirty four lifetime uh, batting average. Fantasy owners aren't going to get anywhere with him. Cliff Pennington is going to come off the bench and maybe split time with Ryan at shortstop. Uh, he's not much better than Ryan. Uh, honestly, the Angel middle infield right now, as I, as I mentioned in one of my pieces, it's it's pretty much a fantasy sinkhole uh, if you're looking for offensive help. The injuries are opening up opportunities, but the names that are available uh, just aren't going to get it done at the plate. Um, and, and interesting, last night, I guess Yunel Escobar had to be removed from the game after jamming his thumb with a DL stint reportedly possible. So when it rains, it pours. 
What about uh, Johnny Giovatella? Seems to lock him into some playing time at least. Uh, does he have any fantasy use? Yeah, he does. Uh, he's He makes really good contact. Uh, he's over 90%. Uh, he's always around that 90% area. The problem with Johnny G is that he has no power. He doesn't have a base running game. If the hits are dropping like they did last year when he hit 273 or 274, um, he can be reasonably valuable, but if they're not dropping, which is what's happening this year, he's hitting barely over 200, uh, he's not going to help you much either. So very limited ceiling for Johnny Giovatella. He's due some good luck. Um, could help you batting average-wise, but that's about it. Well, Jock, I know it must have killed you to write about this in your American League West playing time tomorrow space, but you've offered some advice how fantasy owners can turn the Angels' misery to their own advantage. What are you thinking there? Yeah, it's really pretty simple. Um, they're they're so bad right now. This this is just an awful team. They 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 have a have a real legitimate chance of winding up with the worst record in baseball. Starting with the rotation, we've already talked about the fact that it's a bunch of bottom of the uh, rotation uh, names. They're going to get beat up all season, which in turn is going to put pressure on what is at least a decent pen for now, but is likely going to struggle over the long haul just because they're going to be used so often. Uh, St. Louis just got done. St- scoring a boatload of runs in a three-game series. The Angels just got swept here at home, six games uh, uh, against the Cards in Tampa Bay. Um, Moral of the story, keep your hitters active against the Angels. And actually, it's a pretty decent team to stream pitching against, uh, too, particularly if Mike Trout is slumping, because other than Trout, uh, Cole Calhoun, a home run from Pujols now and then, there's just really nothing there. Sounds like a good piece of advice might be to stack your hitters, I should say, in daily fantasy against the Angels, and maybe put your own pitchers out there. Anybody who's pitching against the Angels might be a good play as well. Uh, Are there any opportunities here, maybe even if we're looking down the road for keeper leagues? Yeah, the one big opportunity I like is Cam Bedrosian, uh, um, who's always had great stuff. He's been lights out since his recall in late April. Um, Obviously, it's a small sample, but when you think about the teardown this team is probably going to go through, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see Joe Smith be gone uh, um, um, by the trade deadline. Houston Street is another trade candidate. Um, Cam Bedrosian is is a potential closer in waiting. If he's figured it out, my guess is that he could actually start next year or or end up this year as uh, as the Angels' closer. Um, The Angels also have a bottom of the rotation name in uh, Nate Jones. He's pitching well at Salt Lake City, but uh, again, another bottom of the rotation guy, and that's it. Uh, System is in pretty bad shape right now. I like Bedrosian a lot, and I have done for years. I've had him for the last couple of years on and off. Uh, drafting him on the hope, and then uh, then down back he goes. But over the last 31 days, after uh, you and I were talking about this earlier, uh, I looked him up, and since his recall, he's only pitched, uh, I think, seven innings, something like that. But he's uh, he's got a 14.1 strikeout per nine dom rate, which is outstanding, 11 strikeouts in seven innings. And his big problem up till now has been control. He's just been too wild, can't find the plate. And in these last seven innings, he seems to have figured something out because his walk rate is down to 1.3 walks per nine innings, just a single walk in those seven innings that he's thrown so far, giving him a command ratio of 11 strikeouts for every walk. I know it's only seven innings. It's a very small sample size, but he's getting 69% first pitch first pitch strikes. His ERA is zero. His whip is one. I like. There's a lot going on here good for Cam Bedrosian right now. 
Yeah, I would agree, and uh, and I've been a big believer in his stuff for a long time. You're absolutely right. It's been about control and even command. When he doesn't know where the ball is going, he can uh, it can create problems clearly, like any pitcher. But he's got closer stuff, and if he's figured out uh, if, if he's figured out the command part of it, uh, um, he's going to be something special. He has Tommy John surgery in his background. I think 2011. That's a good long time for him to have. Uh, had uh, sh- showed signs of recovery that we can believe in. And his fastball velocity is all the way back. He's up at 95 this year so far. I, I, as I said, I like Cam Bedrosian a lot, especially in keeper leagues. Now, you mentioned, Jock, the word teardown a minute ago, and uh, that implies a rebuild. Is there any chance if they do decide that this has got to be blown up and start over that they can think about trading Albert Pujols or, dare I say it, Mike Trout? Well, I'm not sure who would who would take on Pujols' contract right now. Maybe if they did trade Mike Trout, maybe that would be one of the stipulations of the of the contract. You got to trade Pujols as well. Um, I'm just not seeing I'm just not seeing either happening. In fact, um, um, it it was interesting. I think uh, um, Buster Olney floated uh, the idea that rather than trade Trout, uh, the Angels' best move might be to see if they can extend him because uh, if they can, great. You know, it's gonna it's gonna help free agents and other names come here and if Trout doesn't want to be extended it's going to give them some valuable information in terms of dealing with him over the next two three years and, and at that point uh, then they might try to trade him. I remember reading a little while ago that there were some I don't want to call them even rumors there was just kind of rumblings you know about uh, that Trout was getting a little um, disenchanted with the organization because they just don't seem to be making any progress. I mean, he's uh, He's been with the team now, what, four years? They haven't really been a threat to, to anybody as far as getting into the playoffs, making a deep playoff run. He, he's a young kid. He probably has ideas that he'd like to win a championship before he's through. And, you know, if, if they start a teardown and you're Mike Trout looking at it at age 24, 25, whatever he is, and you look around and say, I don't want to be here for five years while they put this back together. Yeah, um, I agree. Generally agree with you. I haven't heard those those particular rumblings. In fact, um, they interviewed Trout the other day. Somebody asked the question, and he basically laughed and said he's not interested in being traded. Who knows what that means? I mean, he could be just being polite. Uh, I would certainly want out if I were Mike Trout in this situation because this minor league is one of the worst I've ever seen. Um, we'll have to see what happens. Uh, it's it's. It's going to be a long haul for the Angels, and it'll be interesting to, to see what they do about all this. One last thing before we move on. Uh, Artie Moreno, the owner of the Angels, came into baseball with a big splash, spending money like he was uh, um, having no shortage of it, shall we say. And uh, is, is that still the case? Is he still aggressively willing to spend money on the team, or has he uh, had second thoughts given the fact that he's put an awful lot of money into it and gotten very little of a result? Oh, if... if- if Artie's not rethinking some things right now, something is wrong. I still think he's willing to spend money, but the problem is where the payroll is now and what the results are. They have contracted themselves into an awfully tough situation. There's obviously a lot of top-heavy bad contracts that they're going to have to clear out before they make another free agent splash. Uh, you've got Jared Weaver uh, and, and uh, C.J. Wilson in their last years um, uh, coming off the books. Um, they've been ineffective both this year and last year. Wilson, pretty much the entire his entire contract. You still got years to go with Pujols. You still got Josh Hamilton on the books, and these guys are all making around twenty million dollars a year. So you 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 subtract that from what you can spend on on the rest of your lineup and development, and there's just not much left. And I I hope Artie's learned a lesson. Uh, 
uh, it's obviously he's he's not a very public guy, but uh, if he hasn't figured a few things out with this, uh, something's wrong. Also in the American League West, Jock Lance McCullers of the Astros is finally about to make his 2016 debut. He'll be facing the Red Sox this weekend, and you couldn't really ask for a worse opponent to come back against right now. The Boston is just hammering the ball all over the place. Of course, McCullers out all season with a shoulder strain. And here's the interesting thing for me. Houston has announced that when McCullers comes back, they're not going to eject anybody from the rotation, though heaven knows they could certainly justify doing that. They're going to go with a six-man rotation. You wrote about this in your playing time tomorrow space as well. What's going on with Houston? What's with this six-man rotation? Yeah, this is a really interesting situation. And, and actually, when I think about it, this isn't surprising, uh, the decision they've made, at least in the short term. Simply put, the, the rotation has been a disaster in Houston all season long. And while it's been mediocre at the bottom, the interesting thing to me is it's been really awful at the top. The two worst DRAs in the, in the rotation right now belong to Dallas Keuchel and Colin McHugh. Now, they pitched a little bit better than their uh, uh than their bottom line indicates. But clearly, they are not the same pitchers as they were last year. Um, and while names like Mike Fires and, and uh, Doug Fister haven't been particularly good, <laughs> they've been better than Keuchel and McHugh's have been lately. And, and no one's really standing out as to who to kick out at the bottom of that rotation. The best pitcher Houston has had recently has been Chris Stavinsky, who's new to the rotation from the bullpen. He's made three starts. His ERA is actually 1.72. And yeah, he's got a lot to prove. He's got to show he belongs in the rotation. He had a, he had a mediocre starting pitching track record in the minors. But how do you kick out a guy like that, the only guy who's giving you consistent starts from, from one day to the next? Uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do going forward. Uh, I think they're trying to buy time in hopes that uh, maybe with an extra day's rest, uh, Keuchel and McCullers can, or Keuchel and McHugh can, can figure something out. Maybe McCullers should be able to add something to this rotation. And maybe uh, somebody from Fires, Fister, and Davinsky will, one of those three names will uh, uh, um, fall out by the way of some bad starts or two of them will elevate uh, they've got a lot of uh, a lot of stuff to consider here sometimes one of the toughest parts of the problem to manage is the fact that the guy who's pitching the worst which might be Keuchel has the biggest contract and the biggest reputation he's got the Cy Young award on his mantelpiece awfully tough for Houston to say you got to you know go back to the bullpen and be the long man for a while because you're not pitching very well and that's, that creates an additional problem for Houston in trying to address the situation. Maybe the six-man rotation works. Who knows? Uh, do you find it troublesome as far as Keuchel is concerned that uh, last year and the year before his walk rate was around two walks per nine innings? Uh, this year jumps up to four right away. And uh, as we've been talking about a lot lately on this uh, podcast, the generally accepted or conventional wisdom is that when you see a sudden spike in control rate and walk rate that uh, there could be elbow problems. Yeah, he depends on that walk rate. Uh, it was interesting. I, I, uh, as you and I talked before the podcast, I watched him pitch against Milwaukee uh, in, in, the, in his opening day game. And um, Milwaukee wasn't chasing pitches out of the zone, and hitters did that all year last year with Keuchel. I don't know what he's lost, maybe a little deception, or if or if uh, hitters are coming to the plate knowing that he's going to try to get them to chase and they're just wising up. Um, but yeah, that walk rate is probably the most concerning thing about his performance to date. 
I know he throws a fair number of cutters and sliders and that kind of thing, which can be really tough on your elbow. Uh, I wonder if there's uh, something sneaking around in there, and of course I hope not. Uh, speaking of rotations, in your May 3rd playing time tomorrow, you noted that the Rangers rotation was uh, going to have you, Darvish, coming back to join a rotation that's pretty good, actually. But you also warned that a reckoning is coming. Then... Uh, no sooner did you say it than it kind of happened. Less than two weeks later, the Rangers are up more than half a run on their team ERA, and they've really started to struggle. Now, there's a certain amount of natural variation that we expect in these things because of small sample sizes, but clearly the narrative is not good here for the Texas rotation. What the heck's going on? No, it's not. Well, the, the, the two big things that have happened since I wrote that that piece, uh, Derek Tolland, who is outpitching his peripherals by a long shot, has just absolutely melted down he's given up 15 runs in uh, in his uh, last two games a uh, total of five innings pitched obviously that'll do wonders to even a team era and aj griffin uh, was put on the dl with shoulder stiffness he'd been giving them some really good innings from uh, from the uh, the rotation um it, griffin's injury obviously takes care of who leaves when darvish returns and they have some off days that'll help until that happens um but uh Holland looks awful right now. Uh, his numbers all the way through. His he's, his uh, first pitch strike ratio is declining. Uh, swinging strike is declining. Velocity's down. Ground ball rate down all at once. This is somebody I would run from right now. What about some of the other Ranger starters? You got Colby Lewis, Martin Perez, those kind of guys. Well, they're interesting in that they've held up their end of the bargain as back of the rotation starters. They continue to outpitch their peripherals. But you got to ask yourself, with summer coming in Arlington, how long does this last? Uh, Colby Lewis has a, a recent history of uh, giving up ugly numbers that really can't be ignored by fantasy owners. Martin Perez doesn't strike out a lot of people. He walks a lot of people. Um, I think the Angel, or the Rangers uh, appear to just get how thin they are here. Just before we went on uh, recording here, it was announced that they'd signed Kyle Loesch. Um, now, they also have uh, Chichi Gonzalez in the minors, and he's had some success down there. But this is a, another guy who's, who's, who's he, he's got a cutter. He, he gets a lot of ground balls, but he's barely striking out five batters uh, per nine innings in the minors. So you got to wonder how successful he'll be over the long haul as a major league pitcher. I mentioned both Colby Lewis and Martin Perez in my Master Notes comment coming up at the end of the podcast, and I have to say, Jock, I wasn't particularly positive about them. They're at the bottom of a couple of lists that I uh, was looking at in some uh, research last week. Um, Colby Lewis and Martin Perez. You said run from Derek Holland. I wouldn't run towards Colby Lewis and Martin Perez. Let's just put it that way. Uh, big news out of New York. Araldus Chapman returns from a domestic abuse suspension and rejoins the Yankee bullpen. Jock, the team has already said Chapman will slot right back into the closer role. Matt Dodge covered all of this for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. This sounds like bad news for sure for Andrew Miller owners. Yeah, it really is. And uh, yeah, it looks like Chapman is assuming the closer role. He's got a save in uh, in one of his first two appearances. Um, interestingly enough, if it, it, unless the Yankees get going, um, it, it, I wouldn't run from uh, either Miller or uh, Dallin Batanzas yet. Uh, um, the Yankees need some pieces. Uh, I could see any of these names being traded. You know, at some point, the Yankees have a long way to go before they get competitive again in the uh, in the AL East. But uh, as long as Araldis Chapman is there and they have that three-headed bullpen monster, it actually at least starts to begin to make their their rotation uh, options maybe a little bit better. 
guys like uh, Ivaldi, who only now has to pitch five, six innings and get a win. Uh, even a guy like Ivan Nova, who's never been lights out since his injury, if he could take just a half a step up. Um, you're talking about guys who can win 10 games for the rest of the season uh, with a little help from their bullpen. Yeah, I agree with that point of view, with this exception. Sometimes if a guy, if the team knows that they can get this guy out of the game after six innings, it cuts down his chance of getting a win, especially if they are down a run or, or, or tied, they won't leave that starter in long enough to try to pick up the win because they know that they can hold the team in with uh, Batances, Miller, and Chapman, and maybe even Chase and Shreve, who's got a, a bit higher of an ERA lately than he had earlier in the season, but pretty good skills. It looks like uh, it looks like the Yankees are going to be very strong, but I don't know what it means for their starting rotation as much as uh, a lot of people say they've got. Uh, I think they've got some holes still. They're going to try to fill. Interesting idea, though, that what you say about perhaps a trade involving one of those fine uh, bullpen arms. I'd bet against it, but it would be interesting to see. Yeah, they seem to have a lot of depth there, and uh, and if they get to a point where they're thinking about 2017, now that's one place to start. Or even this year, you know, if they could find, uh, if they could dangle Batances or Miller out to somebody who's looking for a closer for the next few years, they might get back a, a decent other kind of arm, maybe maybe a bit more uh, offense. They've they've got some room to improve, and uh, that's they don't have a lot of assets to deal shall we say and and it looks like those three guys might be their best assets to deal uh, finally jock we saw a couple of interesting call-ups in the american league this week detroit called up their outfield prospect Stephen moya and the royals called up third baseman chesler cuthbert these are pretty highly regarded prospects uh, what goes on with these moves yeah these are both really interesting for a couple of reasons uh, i had lost track of moya i I'd, I'd simply hadn't i'd stopped paying attention to him despite his his just outstanding power because he just never made enough contact. Well, all of a sudden this year, he's he's making much better contact. He's he's up in the high 70s where he was down in the 60s before. He's, he was hitting over 300 in AAA when they called him up. And all of a sudden now with uh, the Tigers looking for offense, Moy is inserted into the starting lineup and you've got Justin Up Upton in uh, center field. So this is a very intriguing uh, situation in Detroit. Moy has started uh, the game, I think, Thursday night. He went two for four. Um, it'll be interesting to see how he adjusts uh, to the majors, but it looks like he's going to get some playing time. And uh, what about Chesler Cuthbert in uh, Kansas City? Yeah, same with Cuthbert. Um, he's He got called up because uh, Mike Moustakas has a fractured thumb. He's expected to be out at least a few weeks, maybe longer. But Cuthbert was really tearing it up uh, in AAA. This is a guy who's always been a bit of a hitting prospect, uh, but he's always been really young for his league, and he's always struggled. I think he's still only 22, 23 right now. Um, he was hitting for power. I think he'd walked 11 times against 14 strikeouts in, uh, in AAA. I took a look at his numbers, and uh, I picked him up in one of my leagues. Uh, this is an interesting guy. He could be flying under the radar in a lot of fantasy uh, situations. Of course, the worry if you're spending any fab money or wasting a, a, a or maybe not wasting, but using a, a waiver pick, depending on your league rules, is if you grab a guy like Cuthbert, what happens when Moustakis gets back? It just seems like the Royals would go back to the guy they know, and Cuthbert's tenure at the major league level could be relatively brief. Yeah, it does. Uh, it's really hard to say. I mean, Kansas City has a second base problem. I don't know if Cuthbert has the... Uh, the range and the, the movement to be able to move from third to second. Kendris Morales isn't exactly uh, lighting the world on fire at DH uh, this year. Um, I, I would expect him to turn around at least a little bit. But sometimes these things take care of themselves. Uh, um, 
my take on on both of these guys, and particularly Cuthbert, whose stats I was impressed in, uh, you know, by the skills because um, this is a, a young guy who might just be coming into his own right now. Um, obviously, I wouldn't break the bank on him because his playing time, like you've suggested, over the long haul this year isn't guaranteed. But uh, interesting name. In the minor leagues, he's pretty much been entirely a first base, third base kind of guy, although he did get a few games in at second base uh, at triple, at double A, sorry. And then uh, actually Kansas City started him at second base for a game uh, in 2015, so it may be that they're at least thinking about the possibility. I'm not, I shouldn't say that they started him there. They played him there for a couple of innings, so maybe it's in the back of their mind that they can solve a second base issue as well. Jock, uh, thanks a million. It's been very interesting this week, and I'm looking forward to talking with you again next week. Yep, see you, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Stay with us, our feature interview with Steve Gardner, the Senior Fantasy Editor at USA Today, and usatoday.com is coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Two balls and two strikes on it. Here's the pitch on the way, a swing and a belt! Left field, way back, Blue Jays win it! The Blue Jays are World Series champion, as Joe Carter hits a three-run home run in the ninth inning, and the Blue Jays have repeated as World Series champions! Touch them all, Joe. You'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our feature expert interview, and it's our pleasure to be joined by USA Today's senior fantasy editor, Steve Gardner. Steve, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. Thanks, Patrick. Always fun to uh, chat baseball with you and... Uh and maybe some other subjects that might come up. You never know. You never know. Uh, how are your teams doing in your many experts leagues? They're doing okay. Um, I think you know some of, some of the best teams that I thought I drafted are closer to the bottom of the standings in a few leagues, but um, others that I didn't really think were going to be great have, have done better. So uh, I'm in first place in AL Labor. That's probably my best one so far this season. And, uh, and last place in NL labor. So I, I think I've uh, hit all the extremes, and, and hopefully you know, one or maybe two of them will, will pay off in the championship or at least get me down to the final weeks where I have something to uh, watch the box scores for. Who's your big hitters and big pitchers on your leading AL team? Let's see. Um, I think, I, believe it or not, uh, David Price is my, uh, my top pitcher on that team and Carlos Carrasco is my number two pitcher so those are the expensive guys but Rick Porcello has come through um, I, I drafted Ryan Madsen uh, for four dollars pretty cheap um, Nathan Eovaldi's been been good for me so the, the pitching is has been a surprise I think there's still upside there and on the hitting side um, I went with Jose Bautista, who I really hasn't caught fire. Mark Trumbo, I guess, is the guy that's really propelling me. Um, I expected the home runs, but didn't expect the batting average and, and all those RBIs. So um, Trumbo and Ian Kinsler really are, are keeping that team afloat, I think. I have Ian Kinsler and Porcello on my uh, tout American League team and Jordan Zimmerman as well. So I I should be doing, and I have Miguel uh, Cabrera, so I should be doing really well. And I'm last place in on-base percentage. I have 
the worst on-base team, I think, in history, and I, I just can't figure out what to do. I had Shinsu Chu, and of course he got hurt, and then I had to replace him with Paulo Orlando, which is kind of like losing George Carlin and replacing him with, I don't know, Carrot Top. <laughs> well, I tell you, the uh, the, the Lisa Welchel of, of my team is uh, uh, Nomar Mazzara, too. I got him very cheap for uh, like uh, $2 in the draft, and the fact that he came up so early and has been you know, such a, uh, an excellent player and a very valuable one at that kind of price, it's hard to do, especially in, in AL or NL only leagues. Oh, yeah, it's going to be impossible in single-league formats to do that. Uh, at the USA Today website, where you write really regularly, Steve, you have a column this week about buying low and selling high, and we'll talk about some players in a moment. But first, I thought you made two really interesting points that were really well expressed. First, buying low and selling high in the stock market is exactly the opposite of buying low and selling high in the fantasy baseball market. What did you mean by that? The thing is, in the stock market, the tough thing is to know when a stock has reached its higher, its low point, and and if if you think that you found that spot, it's very easy to sell a stock or buy a stock. In fantasy baseball, it's sort of like the the other way, where we have a pretty good idea that players who are overachieving or underachieving uh, when they're doing that, but to find uh, somebody to trade with. And, and help us to cash in and buy low on, on guys that, that maybe have underperformed that we know are going to do better. It, it, you have to find the other owner who's willing to buy high or sell low. And that's, um, that's just hard to do, especially when you've got a, a 10-team league or a 12-team league or even a 15-team even a league. Finding that owner to be able to do that is it's really difficult. It is, and it's in large part because more players, especially good players, understand more about the metrics and things that we look at when we're making these assessments about players who have had slow starts or fast starts, the underlying metrics that we know are really more reliable than the uh, surface metrics. We all know, you know some of the basic things about guys that have high batting averages on balls in play and, 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 or, or ex, ex, uh, you know, extremely low batting averages on balls in play. You know those guys are going to get better, so it's 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 hard because we're all familiar, at least most of us are, with the same sorts of stats and metrics and and predictive things, to where it's really hard to get somebody to say, oh yeah, I, I think that that's real. You know what he's doing now may be overachieving, but I think it's real, and I'm willing to to buy in on it. So yeah, it's um, especially if you know a lot of people are. Uh, baseball HQ subscribers or something like that. Uh, it's really hard to, to uh, convince people otherwise when they can read the same things online and, and see things in uh, USA Today and Sports Weekly that, um, that everybody else does. Indeed, and if you're playing in a league where you can find somebody like that, you really need to find a better league because you're taking candy from babies. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, the, uh, the, the thrill of it, it may be you know, uh, not so great as it would be from uh, beating a bunch of people who were really, really good. On the buy-low side, you had a good expression for it. You said uh, that if you're, if you're an owner and you're interested in buying low on somebody, it's not enough that they're a buy-low opportunity. You say they have to be radioactive for other owners. And you have a couple of examples, starting with Arizona starting pitcher Shelby Miller, an 850 ERA. He's walking almost eight guys per nine innings. Why would anybody target Shelby Miller, even if you could get him for nothing? Well, the one thing that I look at is, you know, it's, seven starts that he's had and his body of work is is such that 
you know, he's been a pretty good pitcher throughout his career. He's a first-round draft choice of the St. Louis Cardinals. You know, the highest ERA he's had in four major league seasons is 3.74. You have to think that whatever has gone wrong with Shelby Miller this season is a mechanical thing. And if it's a mechanical thing, you know, unless there's a hidden injury that, that we don't know about, and that could be, but it seems more likely, especially when there was, there was word that, you know, when he was following through, he was scraping his hand on the ground. I mean, that to me screams a mechanical issue. And if, if he can get that fixed, and sometimes it's that easy. You know, you get a pitching coach looking at video and to spot a flaw in the delivery or in the mechanics, and then all of a sudden things click again. So I, I can see, you know, no guarantee that it's going to happen with Shelby Miller, but you've seen somebody who's got a pretty decent track record who struggled horribly, and I think that's what, you know, being radioactive, I mean, people don't want to touch anybody with an ERA over eight. <laughs> and, and so those are possibly the kinds of guys that you can buy low on, or with people that cut them, you know, maybe they're available for, uh, for just a few dollars on the free agent market for, for fat, you know, spend a little chunk of your fab and not a whole bunch. I think those are the kinds of guys where profit is possible, and I, I know in the um, the FSTA league where I'm in, uh, we drafted in in January, and owners have turned over their rosters a, a few times. It seems like Shelby Miller was available a couple weeks ago, and I didn't have to put him right into my lineup, but I did pick him up. And I think that with as much of the season left to go that we have, there's a decent chance that Shelby Miller could find what's wrong, correct it and become a pretty good pitcher, certainly one worth starting in a 13-team uh, mixed league. You mentioned, though, the, uh, the, the big turnaround here is that his walk rate, uh, what we call control rate at BaseballHQ.com, has consistently over the last few years been around 3, 3.0, 3.1, 3.2, like that. 7.3 this year. It's jumped up. It's more than doubled. And uh, last week when I was talking with Mike Podhorzer from Fangraphs, he had heard the same thing I had, which was... If you see a guy whose velocity is down, there's a there's an increased likelihood of a shoulder problem. And if you see a guy whose com- whose control suddenly really goes haywire, there's a good chance of an elbow injury. How much do you worry about a Shelby Miller when you see his walk rate go from three guys per nine innings to seven guys per nine innings? Yeah, that um, it is it is definitely a concern. And but one of the things too is. If you hold on to him for a while and there is something that is physically wrong with him, you're going to find out, you know, they're going to skip a start. They're going to put him on the DL. Uh, you'll find out, I think. So at least for what I had to pay to get Shelby Miller, it's not so bad to just kind of take that to lottery ticket and say, oh, I didn't win and tear it up and, and throw it away and go get somebody else on the waiver wire. So, yeah, that, there is that possibility that there's some hidden injury. And, you know, looking at those stats, you'd say, yes, with the, with the velocity down, with the control out of whack. Um, if it's not an injury, you know, hopefully it is just a mechanical thing and, and those can be corrected. 
On the other hand, a lottery ticket, if you lose, you're only, you're only out the buck or the two bucks or whatever it costs to buy a Powerball ticket. In this lottery, like it's like the lottery ticket can actually reach into your wallet and take out more money. I'm think, talking about Shelby Miller, you know, the last three starts, suppose you picked him up uh, right at the nadir at the end of April there, and his last three starts, he's given up like, uh, I don't know, 10, 12 runs, something like that in, in 14 innings. He could really hurt you instead of just being a benign sort of uselessness. Yep, that's true. And and if you have to put him into your lineup, I mean, some leagues like Labor, for instance, if he's active, he's got to be in your active lineup. Um, the FSTA league, fortunately, where I have Miller, you can sit him on the bench and and wait and see if he can turn things around, or you know, if it completely goes south and and you can cut him, and he doesn't hurt you as much as it does in in the format that we have in Labor. I like the format in labor better. I think in single league formats especially, there should be no reserve lists and everybody on your roster should be on your roster. Unless he's on the DL, I believe that you should be allowed to hold a guy on the DL while he's uh, while he's on the big league DL, but I hate reserve lists. I think that they really mess up how guys can manage their teams. Uh, you also suggest looking at Billy Hamilton of the Reds, a stolen base specialist who has, I think, five steals this year, something like that, and across the board is killing his owners everywhere else. So... Again, the question, why on earth would anyone want to add Billy Hamilton, except that maybe he's better than Josh Hamilton or Andrew Hamilton or somebody? <laughs> well, the thing, the thing with Billy Hamilton is, I mean, we've seen that even if all he does is get stolen bases, he can still be a valuable asset to a fantasy team. Um, uh, two years ago, I, I won the FSTA League and had Billy Hamilton on my, um, on my team for the entire season. And, yeah, he, he hit for a horrible average, but he was one of, of 14 offensive players that I had. And he was, you know, getting 50 stolen bases. I went back and checked to see, you know, the difference between if I didn't have Billy Hamilton, how many points I would get, in, you know, how many points I would lose in stolen bases and how much it hurt me in batting average. Ended up, he got me seven places in the standings for his stolen bases. And to take out his batting average and just replace it with a league average, he dropped me one point in, uh, in overall batting average. So it, it doesn't kill you as maybe as much as it could or as much as it seems. And the fact that, you know, and baseball HQ readers are familiar with the term about being one skill away from being, you know, an exceptional fantasy player. Obviously, it's a big skill for Billy Hamilton, but if he could just put the ball on the ground a little more, take more advantage of his speed, or, or maybe take a few more walks, you know, all of a sudden, I think his value you know, geometrically increases. It's not just a little step up. It's, it's a big step up because it gives him more opportunities to run, more opportunities to score runs. You know, he had a, a, a play over the weekend where he went from first base and scored on a single to left, you know, because he was running on the play and he, he managed to go, you know, all the way. That's the kind of game-changing speed that Hamilton has. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't want to challenge him to a duel uh, running the bases. Let's just put it that way. No, I, I hear you about that, and he's got the ground ball percentage up over 50% this year so far, which is a, a career high in the major leagues. He was around 50 a few years ago when he first came into the league, the cup of coffee in 2013, and I think you're right. I think that's a really positive sign for Billy Hamilton, 
And what I'd like to see now is I'd like to see him boost his contact rate. He still strikes out 20% of the time, and he doesn't draw uh, enough walks, I don't think. I'd like to see him get you know, back up to that 10, 11, 12% walk rate instead of 6 or 7 where he's been the last few years, including this year. And it's holding him back as far as getting his on-base percentage up to where you could really count on him reaching base enough times to reach that 65 or 70 stolen base uh, threshold that separates the men from the boys in that regard. Yep, and I think that's what you know. D. Gordon last year was able to do and, and demonstrate the skill to hit the ball on the ground, have it go through, and you know he ends up winning a batting title. I mean, they're, they're not that different a style of player, but um, Gordon has shown that he's much better at making contact, much better at, at uh, getting on base, and uh, then you know, then the, the talent takes over from there. BaseballHQ.com so far this year has Billy Hamilton as a $19 player on the strength of seven stolen bases, it turns out, that he has. And uh, I think that is partially a reflection of the fact that stolen bases are simply harder to find these days. Yeah, and the fact, too, that we had so many guys who were um, great stolen base guys last season. A.J. Pollock may be out for the year. Charlie Blackman was injured. You know, both of those guys stole at least 30 bases. D. Gordon suspended. So there's your, uh, you know, second place stolen base guy. Or they, did he lead or did Hamilton lead last year? I can't remember. But they were both way up there in totals. So you take away all of those guys who were sources of a large number of stolen uh, stolen bases. Yeah, where where is it coming from? And so I think in that sense, Hamilton could be a difference maker because if he can get on base and, you know, just a small increase in skill level, then the, the opportunities for him to run and be a huge difference maker, game-changing even, um, uh, increase dramatically. It was D. Gordon last year with 58, Billy Hamilton 57. Later in that same column, uh, Steve, you wax enthusiastic about the Brewers, which might strike some people as a surprise considering their performance this year. They're really a struggling team, but you say they have some interesting building blocks, and I'd, I wonder who do you like on the Brewers for this season and then looking maybe a little ahead? Well, I think the, the, interest, the most interesting guy there is Chris Carter because, you know, number one, He's he's put, uh, hit for a very high batting average, which is not in Chris Carter's uh, wheelhouse, at least so far in his career. Last year, hit under 200. This year, up in the 270, 280 range. And um, I think the thing is, though, is the reason that, that maybe he didn't get enough plate appearances in uh, in Houston was because they would they, they had other options. And, and they needed to find other options because they were a contending team. I think with Milwaukee, the fact that there's really no backup for him um, and the Brewers don't have those designs on the playoffs, so they can go ahead and play Chris Carter and continue to, to put him out there. Even if he starts going into slumps, you've still got, uh, you know, he's still going to get those at bat, so he's going to get a chance to hit the home runs. It's a great hitter's park there in Milwaukee, and I think the fact that he's striking out a little bit less, you know, improving that contact rate has, you know, a huge impact on the number of times he puts the ball in play and the number of times that uh, he gets a chance to, to swing for the fences. So I think Chris Carter's really intriguing, and uh, he was one of the guys that, um, that I looked at and saw in Brewers camp this spring and said, hey, you know, 
maybe I should give this guy a, a second look because he's got – it's funny because a lot of times players will struggle when they go from, from one league to the other or from one team to another, and Carter really hasn't uh, had that happen. And uh, he's, been, he's been hitting fantastic, and, and Ryan Braun has been there in, in the offense uh, ahead of him in the, in the batting order, and he's been having a fantastic season as well. So when Carter's up, chances are – Ryan Braun is on base somewhere. Um, so he's, he's really interesting to me. I think that he's got a chance to set a career high, which is uh, 37. I think he's got a chance to, to approach that and possibly even go a little bit higher. Sounds almost like a daily fantasy stacking strategy. Yeah, yeah, it does. And the fact, too, that Jonathan VR is um, another guy in the Brewers lineup that's pretty interesting because you know, he, he hasn't been a regular before, but he's getting a lot of, of, of playing time playing every day. And one of the things that he's done this season that he hasn't done in previous stops is he's showing plate discipline. And his walk rate, it, it was um, last week when I wrote the column, it was almost double what his previous high walk rate was for, his, for a season. Uh, so those additional times on base... You know, we, he's always had speed. He's always been a guy who's who's been a threat to steal bases. And hitting toward the top of the order, he's been able to get on base, steal bases, and, and kind of set the table for Braun and, and Carter. So even though, you know, you mentioned and the Brewers aren't very good as a team, I think that's really a function of their pitching, which is which is terrible. I think may have the may have one of the worst, if not the worst, ERAs in all of Major League Baseball. The offense is pretty good, and those guys have been uh, solid fantasy performers and I think will continue to be for uh, the rest of the season. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Steve Gardner, Senior Fantasy Editor at USA Today and usatoday.com. And Steve, uh, you had a column a little earlier in the week uh, about waiver picks, guys who could be available in the free agent pool, and it uh, might strike some people again as a little odd, but two of your picks were Colorado pitchers. You mentioned John Gray and Tyler Chatwood. What's the feeling that these guys might have something about them that would persuade anybody to risk the Coors effect on a couple of fairly young pitchers? Yeah, but if if you have the ability to swap guys in and out of your lineups on a weekly basis, it makes perfect sense to start those guys on the road and don't come close to starting them when they're at home. You look at uh, I looked at uh, at Chatwood for instance. He was his splits were were profound in in the four road starts when I wrote that column. He allowed one earned run in twenty seven and two thirds innings, and uh, to do the math. It gets you a 0.33 ERA. Um, he, he shut out the Padres for eight innings, um, and the fact that uh, you know he's young and has that kind of upside, it, it's it's terrible that the pitching arms like his and Gray's, for instance, go to waste in cores. But it's it's a skill that very few pitchers have to be able to pitch there. And those guys, maybe they'll learn. You know, that's another thing over the course of the season. We saw Jorge De La Rosa have better splits at home in Colorado for, for several years than he did on the road, you know, maybe those guys can, can learn, but when they're on the road, they've been pretty good. Gray, especially in terms of strikeout rates, um, he's had a, a fantastic strikeout rate, double-digit strikeouts in, in two of his first three outings, and uh, he's not walking many people either. So you know, if you can stream those guys when they're away from Coors Field and uh, bench them when they are at home, 
I think that makes them worthwhile, even in mixed leagues. I think you can get away with, with having those guys on your roster and, and uh, having them contribute for you. It's an interesting point of view, and so much of it depends on your league rules, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, depends on the format of the league, whether you're allowed to do that, whether you're allowed to pitch or stream, whether you have daily moves or weekly moves, all these kind of considerations that come into play. Yep, and uh, the Rockies uh, were uh, are at home for, for this entire week, uh, so you know maybe if you pick them up, you may have to uh, in some leagues like, like Labor and Tabors. If you pick guys up, you have to start them for that week. So it was one of those where, okay, do, do I pick them up and, and bite the bullet for, for one week when they're at home for the profit of possibly you know, them on subsequent starts being able to, to put them in when they're on the road? It's a, it's a tough call. I did pick up John Gray in one of my leagues too, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Well, it, it it's, doesn't sound so much like a fingers crossed kind of thing as a, as a really um, sensible analysis of the situation and taking advantage of what looks like a potential inefficiency in the market. Namely, whenever anybody sees Colorado Rockies pitcher, they automatically say, I want no part of it. Yeah, and I think it goes back to that whole thing about, uh, you know, players, some players being radioactive to everybody else in your league taking a little bit of a, a closer look and seeing, okay, this is, this is the situation, and here are maybe some extenuating circumstances, and how can you uh, possibly work that guy into your strategy to where he helps you and, uh, and isn't so bad in, uh, in other aspects. Under speculative pickups in that same column, Steve, you listed Trevor May of the Twins and Hector Neris of the Phillies both as closer potential, I'm assuming. Yeah, I think so. I mean, as as you know, Patrick, it's such a, a tricky thing to speculate on closers because teams will go through them, uh, will drop a closer from the from the role just for blowing a save or two. It's um, it is a lot of speculation, and it just depends on how badly you need saves. But you know, Kevin Jepsen is not pitching particularly well in Minnesota, uh, while Glenn Perkins, the regular closer, is on the disabled list. May is pitching much better um, in terms of uh, strikeout rates. May's is much better than Jepson's. So it's one of those things where perhaps the Twins might decide to, to make a change and give May an opportunity. And with him and also with Neris, those guys have been putting up decent ratios anyway. So it's not like if you pick them up, they're going to hurt you in, in whip and ERA. Um, the, the upside is there in saves. You know, you might get to the opportunity where possibly there's a change, or the other guy who's who's currently closing has worked two days two days in a row, and they're the next guys up. It seems like both of those guys are the eighth inning uh, relievers for their respective teams. Neris, especially um, from a strikeout point of view, he's been outstanding. Um, and I think the last time I looked, he was leading all relief pitchers in the majors in strikeouts. So you get good ratios, you get a lot of strikeouts, I mean, turning into kind of a, a Dylan Batonsis or an Andrew Miller in, on the National League side of things. It's, it's a nice luxury to have to be able to get one of those guys and pick him up, and should he get a save opportunity? I think Naris did get at least one you know, and converted it. That's, uh, that's an even bigger bonus. 
Yeah, it, it, we talked about uh, Hector Neris last week on the National League report with Harold Nichols, and uh, and Nick said that uh, another advantage Neris offers is that he pitches a lot of innings. I think he's leading all of uh, all of Major League Baseball in relief innings pitched as well. Getting back to Trevor May, I think something that's interesting about him. You mentioned that his ratios are not going to kill you. ERA right now is at two even, and his WHIP is at one eleven, which is sounds good, but it's actually a little high for a relief pitcher, and the. Problem problem seems to be with him is that he's still throwing quite a few walks, four walks per nine innings, and he's getting away with it because he's striking out so darn many hitters. And I think this also represents something of an opportunity as a guy grows and matures into his role that it's a lot easier to cut down on walks than it is to cut down on how many hits you're allowing unless you really improve as a pitcher. Those hits are going to be kind of the result of your stuff. And the walks are going to be the negative result of your stuff, a little harder to control. I think May has a lot of room for improvement in that walk rate, and if he does, he could easily get that whip under one. Yeah, and I think with with young guys or guys that don't have a lot of experience, the umpires aren't as familiar, and so they they don't know exactly what their their pitches do uh, necessarily. So once that familiarity comes a little bit more. I think the umpires may be a little bit more generous, and maybe that's just uh, me speculating, but it seems like veteran pitchers get a lot more calls on the black than uh, than the young rookies and, and uh, guys that don't have a lot of experience. Steve, another calling you had at usatoday.com was titled Six Struggling Starting Pitchers with Different Degrees of Concern. And I think this is an important point that sometimes get lost in the uh, in all of our efforts to be heard out there in the clutter, and that is that all sort of struggling pitchers are the same, and really they're not. And before we get to specific pitchers, what signs are you watching for when you look at pitchers that create concern or relieve concern? I think one of the things to look for is if there's a drop in velocity. Uh, I think you know sometimes pitchers can go through the dead arm periods toward the beginning of the uh, season's and you know, if there's a resulting loss in velocity, then you're going to see a corresponding loss in effectiveness. So things like that I watch out for. Look like we're talking about with Shelby Miller, you know, increases, dramatic increases in walk rate or decreases in strikeout rate. What does that, you know, that seems to say that something is wrong and uh, needs to be monitored. So I look at those things. I also look at, at the basic metrics of, you know, strand rates. Are, are, they getting, are they getting lucky or unlucky with runners left on base? Or are uh, uh, opposing hitters having a, a, a huge hit rate? You know, average on balls in play is, is 400 or something ridiculous like that. So I, I look at all those things and, and try to process them to see, you know, what's normal for these particular pitchers and how far uh, away from, what kind of deviation from normal, and maybe see if there's a, a possible explanation for, uh, for why they uh, are where they are. You split the six pitchers in your story into three ace-level pitchers, David Price, Zach Greinke, and Matt Harvey, and you have three others, uh, a layer below that at least, we'll say, Michael Pineda, uh, Justin Verlander, and Doug Fister. We've talked about almost all these guys here at Baseball HQ Radio so far this season because of their struggles, but Doug Fister's name hasn't really come up as far as I remember. Give us your take on, on Astro starter Doug Fister. Well, I think it seems like there's a, an epidemic there among Astros pitchers that they're, uh, they're underachieving so far this season. But Fister, for one, I think uh, 
he's always been a guy that doesn't really strike out a lot of batters. But this year, it's been even worse. Less than five strikeouts per nine innings. He's generally had good control. That's gone up as well. You know, last year, just over two walks per nine. This year, three and a half. So that strikeout to, um, to walk ratio is way down. And for a guy that, that doesn't, you know, have that strikeout pitch and relies on getting batters to, to get themselves out a lot of times, um, that's a big concern. Looking at his uh, fastball velocity, it's dropped a little bit from last year, but that was, drop, uh, that was another mile and a half from the previous year. So as we see, you know, Fister at 32 years old, it's getting to a point where, you know, maybe he can't fool these guys anymore and his days may be numbered. I mean, even despite the, the fact that, uh, that his ERA was up over four and a half, batting average on balls in play was still fairly low at around 250. So there could be even worse results in store for Doug Fister because, you know, once opposing hitters start getting a little bit luckier, they're putting the ball in play pretty regularly, and you know he's walking more guys, so there are more more batters or more runners on base. I think that's just a, a mix for disaster. And uh, I think in Houston, because a lot of their pitchers are similar, you know, not not fireball guys, um, more nibblers on on either edge of the plate. Um, Keuchel, Mike Fires, Fister, uh, they're going to really. Uh, really look forward to getting Lance McCullers back because he does have that swing and miss and that, that high velocity. And I think when he gets back and gives them a little bit more of a difference in you know the way that the ball looks from day to day, from starter to starter, I think that's going to help uh, a little bit more. But of all of those guys, I'm more concerned about Fister than anybody else. Doug Fister's expected ERA at Baseball HQ, which is a guess at how, when we apply the metrics, what his ERA should be is about 460, which is which means his uh, current 454 earn run average is pretty much where he ought to be given his skills package. I think his uh, FIP, which is a Fangraphs measure, is even higher, over five at this moment. The thing that really scares me about Doug Fister when I look at his package of skills, Steve, is... His soft hit and medium hit rates are both down a couple of percentage points, and that doesn't sound like a lot. But if you think about where, if you're getting less soft contact and less medium contact, both of which create a lot of outs, what do you think is going up? If you said hard contact, you know, good for you, you figured it out, because his hard contact rate is actually up over 30%, almost at 33% now, which represents a three or four point jump over his last couple of years, an eight point jump over his effective year in 2014. That to me is a real concern, and it seems to really support what you're saying, is he's just not fooling anybody anymore, or at least not as much as he used to be able to. And, and Minute Maid Park is not a great place to allow a lot of hard contact because those uh, Crawford boxes are beckoning, and, uh, and and it's almost like they're lighting up when when guys like uh, Fister are on the mound and, and uh, those hitters are hitting it hard. 14.7% home run per fly ball rate, and ordinarily we'd say we expect that to regress back towards 10%, but 
geez, not always, you know, there's some, if there's an underlying reason that explains it, you can't automatically assume a favorable regression from a bad stat. Uh, in an article you had called Why Fantasy Players Should Stick with These Struggling April Stars, you suggested holding on to a bunch of hitters who struggled through April. Uh, we covered this a little talking about pitchers, but what signs are you looking for with hitters when you're trying to decide if a cold start is a fact or a fluke? I think similar sorts of things, you know, how, what kind of luck are they hitting in? Um, are, are a lot of the, the balls that they hit turning into outs? Um, checking, again, the, the average on balls in play, the hit rate. Those things, I, I think, also take a look at, um, and this is something that we can look at a little bit in spring training as well, to see the ratio of, of the strikeouts to walks. And are they being patient? Are they you know, possibly chasing balls you know, out of the strike zone? And, and striking out more often than not, um, those kind of uh, can tell, you know, if, if they're more fact than fluke. I look to also that, um, to see it's, it's, not, it's not a big enough sample. You know, one month is still not big enough to really make uh, a definitive call on these guys. And so some of the guys that I did mention, um, Anthony Rizzo was interesting. He was hitting around 218, I think, uh, at the end of April, but he was still driving in a ton of runs and hitting home runs, and it was simply just the fact that the average on balls in play was so low, and all of a sudden in May, it's not like he's doing anything different, but he's hitting for a much better average, and he's still hitting home runs and driving in runs. Um, and looking at him, one of the things that, that showed – that it wasn't a real, uh, that, that low batting average wasn't real in April. He had 18 walks and 14 strikeouts. So he wasn't chasing, he was being patient, and good things happen when hitters do that. You know, a couple of uh, a couple of statistics that I like to look for when I'm looking at a at a cold starting hitter or a, a hitter in a cold streak is I always want to check what their BABIP or hit rate is on hard hit balls because it should be this is something that locks in very early at seventy percent or so. And sometimes if you see a guy whose whose hit rate on hard hit balls is sixty percent or fifty five percent, then you know that. Either they're defending him perfectly, or he's just hitting a lot of atom balls, and you got to be a little more forgiving of that. Similarly, any kind of line drive, soft, medium, or hard hit line drive, they almost always get in there about 70% of the time for hits. And if, if I see a line drive rate where uh, the hit rate on line drives is unusually low, I'll, I'll give the guy more credit for a possible bounce back. Uh, Steve... Uh, we talk about daily fantasy baseball a little bit here at Baseball HQ Radio, and one of the disputed tactical ideas in that game is the debate over batter versus pitcher stats. In April, you had an article saying you had 13 examples where batter versus pitcher stats definitely matter. Tell us more about this. Well, uh, it, was, it was something that uh, one of our, my colleagues, Ted Berg at, at USA Today, did the heavy lifting, and uh, he dug through baseballreference.com's play index, and, and that's just like opening a, a treasure trove sometimes. And um, it, the, some of the, uh, the examples, uh, I think uh, most familiar to a lot of daily fantasy players was the Paul Goldschmidt versus Tim Lincecum matchup, where Goldschmidt, 15 hits in 28 career at-bats against Lincecum, with four of those, uh, or no, seven of those 15 hits, being home run, so his OPS is, is in the, the stratosphere. Um, I think, you know, in general, the, the, the common uh, feeling about that is 
that the sample sizes are so small, relatively speaking, that there's no way that you can have stats, batters versus pitchers individually can be predictive. However, I'll say, I'll say two things. Number one is I think that they can be in certain cases to where you have um, Miguel Cabrera versus Corey Kluber is another instance. Cabrera has a, a lifetime OPS of 1652 in 37 plate appearances. Now, the, the other thing, uh, Matt Harvey against Bryce Harper. Actually, uh, Matt Harvey has Harper's number. Uh, Harper has never gotten a hit against Matt Harvey in 20 career at-bats. I think there's something there. However, the thing that, that everybody wants to know in daily fantasy is, what's going to happen this time? And even though Matt Harvey may have Bryce Harper's number, there's still the opportunity that Bryce Harper has to where maybe he figures something out, maybe he gets a lucky hit, and this time, you know, the next time that, that he faces him, he breaks that and you know, does something completely counter to what has happened so far in the career. That doesn't mean that Harvey still doesn't have his number, and the next time they face each other, he could strike him out four times. I think what people forget when they look at those batter versus pitcher numbers is to think that in absolute terms, and you can't do that even if there is something there. You can't expect it to happen over and over and over again so that Bryce Harper never gets a hit against Matt Harvey because sometimes even if he, he swings at a, at a bad pitch and gets fooled, he's still going to get a hit. I think you're taking a fairly sensible approach on this question because I don't think that there is such a thing as batter versus pitcher for all the reasons you said. It's just too few at-bats. But having said that, if you see a guy in the Goldschmidt versus Lincecum situation that has this overwhelming advantage with all of those home runs, he's he's got an OPS around two, I think. It's just a phenomenal performance against this particular pitcher. You have to think something's going on there that is perhaps outsider ability to understand through metrics. Something about the way he sees the ball, there's something going on there. And, and the proof is you can see it. Right. It's, it's the magnitude, I think, is, is what we look at. If you looked at somebody and, uh, you know, in, in 12 at-bats or 15 at-bats and the guy is hitting 320, you know, that there, you really can't, can't get anything from that. But if you have these extremes, like, uh, like we're talking about in the article, Joey Votto has a 1362 OPS against Zach Granke. There's another one. You know, three home runs and two strikeouts and 34 plate appearances. Those kinds of, of extreme examples, you have to look at it and say, there's got to be something there. I completely agree, and I, and I think it's, it's a, it is a question of magnitude is a good way to put it, that uh, uh, if, if you're seeing a 600 batting average or an 1,800 OPS, I think I don't necessarily think you could bet your house on it, but given a choice between that and a guy who doesn't have that seeming advantage, there's nothing wrong with taking that that little bit of information. It's like when you I used to play the horses, and sometimes you'd be reading through the form and and you'd say to yourself, I remember this horse runs really well on tracks like this, or I remember this horse beat the favorite three out of four times in the in the times I've seen him race. I'm gonna bet this guy this horse because. I've just seen him, and I know that he can beat the, the the favorite at least. And there's no metric value that you can point to, but you can still say, I think I know what I'm talking about here. 
Yep, and exactly. That's one of those things. You know, we're we're always searching for things we can quantify and we can measure, um, and we're doing a great job with that with all the different kinds of metrics. But there's still some other things that uh, that are just outside of our grasp that we we can't or or haven't yet been able to to measure. Do you remember a story, Steve, that came out a, a year or two ago where somebody in, in the uh, um, sabermetric community, might, be, might even have been somebody in, in the saber organization itself, was trying to figure out a way to look at not batter versus pitcher stats, but batter versus pitcher type stats, that they were figuring out a way to, to classify pitchers into you know nine or ten different classifications, which would allow you to aggregate more at bats against those pitcher types. And then if you said, okay, we're we're looking at left-handed, um, two-seam fastball mostly type guys who who induce a lot of ground balls, and we're, we've got forty of them, which am- amounts to maybe a thousand at bats for uh, a given player over five or six years. Now all of a sudden you're getting sample sizes that are a little more relevant and a little more actionable. Right. Yeah. Uh, I do remember, but I haven't, I, I don't know that I've seen any follow-up work on that. And, um, but that, it makes a lot of sense. You know, logically it does make a lot of sense because pitchers, you know, there, there are pitchers who are a lot alike each other. Um, there's, there's not a whole lot like Clayton Kershaw, for instance, but but when you get to, into the fourth and fifth starters and, and, and guys like that, it seems like you should be able to, to have a larger classification of guys that are, all in all, pretty similar. I wonder if it would be easier to do it the other way around by taking uh... – taking batters who have a particular kind of profile insofar as because we have so much more batted ball data to say, okay, this guy's a left-handed pull hitter, especially on the fly ball side, he grounds to the other side and so forth. Might be a different way of going about it. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Steve Gardner from USA Today, the senior fantasy editor there. And Steve, during the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about studs and duds for the remainder of the year, and you can define it any way you like, but typically it's Stud's a guy you wouldn't mind acquiring or holding, Dud's a guy you'd like to trade away or avoid acquiring. And let's start with the hitters in the American League. Who's a stud hitter that you like? I, li- I like uh, Kyle Seeger. He's a guy that, that tends to fly under the radar a little bit. Um, I've written a little bit about him and the fact that over the first month of the season, his average on balls in play was, was under 200, and uh, he had to get had to get a, uh, a six- or seven-game hitting streak that he was on to start the month of May to uh, even get his batting average over 200. I think he's one guy that, that uh, I'm looking forward to, to seeing how he progresses. Um, he's always been, like I said, uh, a quiet, understated kind of guy out there in Seattle. And, um, you know, if you're, you're looking for somebody to maybe plug that hole at third base, might be able to, again, buy low on Kyle Seeger if, if somebody's, maybe uh, looking to sell. Or just uh, maybe intrigue somebody who's a little impatient with Kyle Seeger. Uh, that, that's the kind of buy low I think that really can pay off some dividends because I would feel more comfortable in offering a better player for a buy low on Kyle Seeger than I would on some of the other buy lows that we've talked about because I'm confident that Kyle Seeger's a good player and I know what his ceiling is if he, if he just recovers back to his normal levels I know what I'm in for I'd be I'd be a little more willing to hand over something of value who's a National League stud hitter you like guy that I like and I like from the beginning of of the season and uh, have him on my NL Tout Wars team so I, I hope I'm right here 
Marcelo Zuna from the Miami Marlins. Um, and I think one of the great things, and you can, you can debate the, uh, the value of, of lineup protection or anything like that, but he's in such a great situation there in Miami with Christian Yelich, who's an emerging guy. You know, I, I would uh, classify maybe Christian Yelich as a possible stud hitter as well because he's so good at making contact, and I think uh, a future batting champion could be, you know, could be on his resume before too long. Just a solid hitter. He's getting on base an awful lot. There's the uh, the specter of Giancarlo Stanton and his near 500-foot home runs at any time. So pitchers have to be wary of those guys, and Ozuna's a, a, a fellow who has the potential to hit for power and also steal bases. And I think he's one of those kind of young hitters that benefits from Barry Bonds being the hitting coach there in Miami. Uh, I think that's maybe an untapped resource that, uh, that guys like Ozuna can, can benefit from and getting some of that uh, knowledge and experience from Bonds. I think Ozuna is, is uh, a lot of upside ahead of him. Speaking of Bonds and Christian Yelich, uh, the other interesting thing there, I think, is uh, Yelich has always been a pretty good hard contact guy. We we rate him uh, as about 13% above league average making hard contact. His hit rate is also, or his uh, BABIP, is also consistently around 38%. 38%, a three eighty BABIP, which is really, really strong, and it's been consistent over the last four years. He's at 38% this year. 38% three years ago, 36, 37 in there. The difference this year is that Christian Elich is drawing 16% walks. And that's got to be, that has to be some kind of Bond's influence about, about studying the pitchers and understanding how they work. His on base percentage this year, 450, right around 450. That's really something, don't you think? Oh, indeed, indeed. A breakout season there. And the, the fact, I think, one of the reasons that his average on balls in play is so high is. He hits a lot of. He's a very high ground ball rate, and one of the things for a guy that hits the ball as hard as he does, you know, if he can just get a little bit of, of lift on his swing or make a little tweak there, maybe Barry can help him with that. Um, we could see a guy who could catapult the number of, of home runs that he has, and and be a real, you know, because with his speed, he could be, um, you know, talking about early round material in, in years to come in draft. I just wonder why he's not stealing bases. Uh, after 21 stolen bases a couple of years ago, we'd expect it, uh, you know, that he, he could easily be a 20 stolen base guy, especially with this fantastic on-base percentage that he's ringing up. He's 50 points better than he was at that time. He's got two. Yeah, that's, um, that is a, a very good question, and maybe they're trying not to take the bat out of the hands of Stanton or Ozuna or, or subsequent hitters, but yeah, it seems like there's a lot of room for improvement there if, if he wanted to do that. Or maybe if they'll let him do that, but the fly ball percentage you mentioned, he's under 20%, but his home run per fly ball rate, 25%. So when he hits fly balls, they're getting out of the yard. It's not a problem there. Uh, who's a dud hitter in the American League, Steve? A guy you don't want on your roster, you'd trade if you had him. Well, I, I don't know if he's a big enough name, but um, I'm looking through guys that have really high strikeout rates, and Steven Souza Jr. jumps off the page. He's one of, he's one of those guys, you know, talk about uh, potential for both power and speed. Souza's been a real disappointment, and, and I was starting to try and get back on the bandwagon again this spring, but 
just that strikeout rate is is just way too high, and um, I'm I'm sort of backing off again on on Sousa Jr. and you throw in the, the not so great home park and just too many strikes against him. So to speak, uh, yeah, he's down around 60% contact rate, striking out 40% of the time. And as I've said many times on this show, if you strike out, you can't accomplish anything in the counting stats. Uh, who's a National League hitter you consider a dud? Well, I, I hate to admit this, too, because I have him on a couple of teams, but uh, Ryan Zimmerman has been such a disappointment, especially now that teams have have found that out that he's not able to cash in when Bryce Harper is on base and has turned uh, you know Bryce Harper into a a walking machine because they're not throwing him anywhere anything close to the plate because Zimmerman in that spot behind him is not able to make them pay and uh, I you know you look at you look at his career stats um, one of the things I noticed about him the stat runs created per game you know the Bill James runs created. It's almost a perfect bell curve for, for Zimmerman to where it peaked at age 25 in 2010, and it's continued to go down, 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 and it's, it's now you know, at the lowest point where it's been. I, it's sad to say I think just the injuries and everything have taken their toll on him to, to a once pretty darn good hitter um, to only a shell of himself anymore. Wasn't that long ago where he was a pretty reliable mid twenty dollars type hitter, and then, as you said, all of a sudden just fell off the planet altogether. And now his uh, hard contact index this year, a measure, as I said just a moment ago, of uh, how hard a guy's hitting it and how often, which was routinely twenty to thirty percent above league norms, is now ten percent below league norms, and uh, oftentimes that indicates an injury. I think you might be right about that. Uh, uh, Steve Gardner's uh, hitters, his American League stud Kyle Seeger of Seattle, his National League stud Marcelo Zuna of Miami with an honorable mention to Christian Yelich, his American League dud Steven Souza, strikeout artist in Tampa, and his National League dud hitter Ryan Zimmerman of Washington. Steve, let's move over to the mound. In the American League, who's the stud pitcher you like? Uh, I'm going to Tampa Bay again. Uh, Drew Smiley, I think, is a guy that sort of flies under the radar. But, um, you know, he, he's had problems with injuries. But he seems healthy this season. The results bear it out. Uh, a strikeout rate of 10.7 Ks per nine. Um, the record is not good, and I think that's one of the things that, that makes me feel good about recommending him because you know he may be flying a little bit under people's radar, but that, that strikeout rate to me is real. And every time he's had a chance to, um, to pitch regularly when he has been healthy, he's been very good. So he's a guy like, and again, Tampa, you know, the, the Tropicana Field is a, a nice pitcher-friendly location, and uh, I think he can take advantage of that the rest of the season. Over in the National League, who's a stud pitcher you like? I'm always a, a fan of Francisco Liriano, and uh, so I'll pick him out. I love the ground ball rate, uh, 57%, uh, one of the top 10 in Major League Baseball among starting pitchers. He's got the strikeout rate of 10 per nine, and when you combine that great ground ball rate and a strikeout rate, you can't help but have success. Nice pitcher-friendly park there in Pittsburgh, and also the fact that he's got a pretty decent defense behind him. I think uh, the walk rate is is generally the one thing that you worry a little bit about with Liriano, but uh, all the other indicators are are pretty good. I'm still gonna gonna ride him as a, as I have uh, many years in the past. Just uh, I don't know some guys you you kind of get attached to, and and I think Liriano is one of those for me. 
Oh, especially when you have him when everybody else thinks you're making a mistake and then he has a great year like he did and and then you, you just bask in that glow for a couple of years. And the thing is, so much of the credit seems to have been gone, given to Ray Searage, the pitching coach there, and uh, we've even seen some guys been able to hold on to it, like uh, Jay Happ in Toronto is doing a pretty good job this year, whereas some guys weren't. A.J. Burnett went to Philadelphia, stank out the joint, went back to Pittsburgh, started pitching well again. So... Having Ray Searage there, and the other thing I like about all the Pittsburgh pitchers is they're very aggressive about uh, defensive positioning and shifting and so forth, and they seem to be doing it really well. They do. I, I think they're, they're one of the best, and in fact, probably the best at incorporating those sabermetric principles, you know, not, not just defense, but, but everything, a, a whole bunch of sabermetric principles. Um, they're able to, to convey that to the players. I think they, they get more buy-in for those types of things, at least the clubhouses that I've been in, uh, of any other team in Major League Baseball. And if you get you know, the, the team and the players buying into those things, um, I, I think they, they make them much more uh, effective. I totally agree, and I think they're doing a fantastic job with that. In the American League, who's a dud picture for you? Matt Latos is is one of those guys. I still can't figure out how he's doing what he's doing. And uh, in looking a little bit deeper into the numbers, the the strand rate of 87, 88%, I think that has a lot to do with it. You know, talking about Ray Searage and the magic that he works there in Pittsburgh, Don Cooper's got a pretty good reputation, too, there in Chicago. And uh, to take a guy like Latos, who, if you know, if you've seen him at all over the last two years, it's just mystifying how a guy could be so bad uh, for so long to come over to the American League even and, and be as good as he has so far this season. I still just think there's, there's too much smoke and mirrors there that, that his bubble has to burst at some point. So uh, I, I would put Latos in the, the category there as A.L. Bud pitcher for me. 5.0 strikeouts per nine is a bad, bad thing. And, and that little park that he plays in, too, and another big worry, although they've cut his home run per fly ball rate by a few points, I think Matt Latos, I understand the Don Cooper effect and all of those sorts of things. I just, to me, it's a, it's a, a one of those big round bombs like Boris Badenoff used to have on Rocky and Bullwinkle with the burning fuse. Uh, <laughs> and finally, how about a National League dud pitcher, a guy you don't want? All right. Here's the thing. Um, I've, I've had concerns about all three of the New York Mets starters, the, the stud guys, Matt Harvey, Jake DeGrom, and Noah Syndergaard, S- since last year, the end of last year, and how hard the, uh, the Mets rode those three guys all the way to the World Series. It's, it's, a, you know, it's one of those deals with the devil, sort of, that you'd make every time because they got to the World Series and had a chance to, to win it, but you've got to pay in the end. And, and I think we're seeing all three of those guys to some degree. You know, Harvey's velocity's been down, although it was a little bit better in his last start. Um, DeGrom, same sort of thing. Has, you know, they haven't been striking out as many guys as, as they did last year. And even Syndergaard had, uh, you know, he's been, I think, the best of the three, but shown some signs as well. Um, I just think that over the long haul, that uh, the innings that they put and the, the high-stress innings that they put on their arms last year is going to affect them somehow. And uh, I'm not going to say that, that one or more of those guys are going to develop some injury or anything like that. I don't think it's specifically like the uh, Verducci effect that, that it happens. 
to uh, to any of those guys necessarily, but I think their effectiveness is going to be diminished. And uh, I was not high on any of those three guys at the beginning of the year, and I'm still in that camp right now. And we we're starting to, or at least we see at least some evidence that they're not the same pitchers necessarily that they were last season. I think it's an interesting point. I was looking earlier this week at Noah Syndergaard's historical record. He had 150 innings. That's what he got credited for last year, but that ignores his postseason innings. And I've done research at BaseballHQ.com that says it doesn't really matter. The uh, The guy who pitches all the way into the World Series has never shown a bad effect the subsequent year, but that's in the aggregate. These guys are also young, and I think that does make a difference. Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, with Matt Harvey, his walk rate has been up, you know, considerably over over his first few starts. Um, hitters are, are being able to hit him for a, a higher average on balls in play and, and, and hit him in general a lot harder than they have before. You know, he used to have an opponent's batting average somewhere, you know, in the 210, 220 range. Um, this year, it's up close to 300. So it, it seems like you know, you can't, at least for me, I can't really put my finger on it, but it just seems like the, uh, they're not the same pitchers exactly, and, and uh, there is some diminished results. Steve Gardner's pitchers, his American League stud, Drew Smiley of Tampa, his National League stud, Francisco Luriano of Pittsburgh, his American League dud, Matt Latos of the White Sox, and his NL dud pitchers, Matt Harvey, plus... Jacob DeGrom and Noah Syndergaard. Of the three, I think Harvey's the guy who worries me the most, I have to say, Steve. Uh, this has been a real pleasure, as always, talking to you, Steve. Tell listeners where they can keep up with you. Sure. You can uh, find work uh, for me and, and, and all the other guys at, at uh, USA Today Fantasy Sports at fantasy.usatoday.com. And uh, you can even see some Baseball HQ stuff up there as well. And um, if you want to look for me on Twitter, I'm, I'm fairly active and will answer your questions if you have any. You can get me at Steve A. Gardner. Thanks a million, Steve. Uh, it's always a pleasure, and I hope we get to talk with you again uh, a little later on this season. That would be great, Patrick, and uh, we'll see how some of these predictions, you, you hold me to them, okay? Steve Gardner is the senior fantasy editor at USA Today and writes often for the newspaper and for the usatoday.com website, and you should check him out. We have our commentaries coming up, but first let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week in Playing Time Tomorrow coverage of the American League Central, analyst Mike Shears looks at Danny Santana's potential in Minnesota as an infielder, at shortages in the White Sox bullpen and more. In Facts and Flukes performance validation analysis, Greg Pyron looks at Jeff Samarja, Ryan Zimmerman, Derek Norris, and other players. And in alternative format coverage, Brad Kuhlman looks at the season-long grind of daily fantasy baseball. During the season, BaseballHQ.com has daily matchups reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, team coverage and minor league scouting, and of course, the projections and other roster management tools you can use to dominate your competition. And it's only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend matchups and master notes, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Dodgers left-handed pitching prospect Julio Urias is BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Los Angeles Dodgers' Julio Urias continues to develop as one of the best pitching prospects in the minors. 
Heading into spring training, there was some speculation that Urias or teammate Jose De Leon had an outside shot at winning the fifth starter role, at least until Hinge and Ryu returned to action in mid-June. That scenario was likely far-fetched, as the Dodgers had older, more experienced options such as Ross Stripling and Zach Lee. A groin injury to Urias ensured that he would start the season in the minors, and that the Dodgers would monitor his workload closely. Urias is, after all, just 19 years old and has made fewer than 20 starts above A-ball, and has never logged more than 100 innings pitched in any year since turning pro. Still, Urias will be hard to keep in the minors for long. The hard-throwing lefty comes after hitters with a plus 92-95 mile-an-hour fastball that tops out at 97. He backs up the heater with a good hard breaking ball and a plus changeup that results in plenty of swings and misses. Through five starts, Urias is 3-1 with a 1.50 ERA. He's walked just six while striking out 33 and limiting opposing batters to a minuscule 1.76 batting average against at 30 innings pitched. The Dodgers will likely keep Urias until the minors at least until after the Super 2 arbitration deadline passes in early June, and he could be used in relief when he does get called up, so it's important to set realistic expectations for what Urias will do in 2016. Still, for those in long-term keeper formats, Julio Urias is a must-own and has the stuff to become a legitimate number one starter down the road. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes ongoing daily call-ups coverage, looking at prospects like Detroit outfielder Stephen Moya, San Francisco right-hander Clayton Blackburn, Cubs right-hander Carl Edwards, and many more call-ups. In our regular feature, The Eyes Have It, BaseballHQ.com scout team analyst Chris Blessing is on the road looking at Texas prospects Dylan Tate and Andy Ibanez and Braves prospect Tuki Toussaint. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at how long Chase Headley can possibly stay in the Yankees lineup and speculate on a changing of the guard in L.A. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. The Yankees are stuck in last place in the AL East here in mid-May, and while there's plenty of blame to go around, Chase Headley certainly hasn't pulled his weight. Headley, the team's starting third baseman, is hitting just 178 through his first 90 at-bats and just hit his first home run of the season on May 12th. A 23% hit rate hasn't helped, but Headley's 192 expected batting average and negative 39 base performance value, or BPV, suggests the Yankees can ill afford to have this lack of production in the lineup going forward. Unfortunately for Yankee fans, the alternatives aren't that great. BaseballHQ.com's Chris Olson looked at potential options earlier this week in his Playing Time Tomorrow column and noted a couple names for AL-only owners to monitor. One of them is Ronald Torreyes, who has seen sporadic playing time behind Headley at third at the major league level. Torreyes is hitting over 300, but he's only accumulated 32 at-bats so far this season. He profiles as a slap hitter with little to no pop. And while Torres has flashed decent speed, that hasn't carried over to any notable stolen base production thus far. 
Fantasy owners may instead want to speculate on Robert Ref Snyder. Ref Snyder, who's a fellow University of Arizona alum, has traditionally played second base, but has recently seen a lot of reps at third base in AAA. We ranked Ref Snyder as the number five prospect in the Yankees system entering the season with a 7B prospect rating, meaning that while the game-changing breakout upside isn't quite there, Ref Snyder has a decent shot to be a major league regular. He's hitting 288 with a 336 on base percentage in his first 30 games with five steals, and Ref Snyder's recent move to third base could be an early sign that the Yankees are developing their backup plan behind Chase Headley. It'd be a prudent move to scoop up Ref Snyder in your deeper leagues. To the National League, there may be a changing of the guard and second base in Los Angeles. Howie Kendrick was thought to receive the majority of playing time at second base, even after L.A. re-signed Chase Utley this past offseason. But Kendrick's been awful at the plate with a sub-Mendoza batting average, no home runs, and just one steal through 85 at-bats. Kendrick's underlying contact rate has dipped along with his hard hit ball rate. So while his strong baseline of 290-ish batting averages in recent seasons suggests Kendrick should bounce back, the skills he's currently displaying at least lessen the odds of him doing so. Chase Utley would stand to gain more playing time if Kendrick continues to struggle at second. Utley's hitting over 280 in 100 at-bats with strong support from a 12% walk rate and 83% contact rate. Utley's a major health risk, and he still won't play against left-handed pitching. But his plate approach won't hurt you, and he stands to gain somewhat regular playing time if Kendrick continues to struggle at second base. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every Tuesday. Now it's time for our Frequent Flyers commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Tampa first baseman Steve Pierce and Colorado right-handed starting pitcher Tyler Chatwood. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Feeling lucky? In this Friday the 13th edition of Frequent Flyers, we'll profile two players, a hitter who could be on the verge of putting up monster power numbers, and a pitcher whose performance is as different as night and day. Literally. But first, let's talk about 33-year-old Tampa Bay Rays first baseman Steve Pierce, who is currently batting 308 with 5 home runs, 11 RBI, and only 65 at-bats. Sure, 65 at-bats is a very small sample size, and two of his 5 home runs came in one game last Tuesday, May 10th, against Wade Miley and the Seattle Mariners. But could this be more than one lucky game? Maybe Steve Pierce is heating up. After all, Steve Pierce batted 293 with 21 home runs and only 102 games for the Baltimore Orioles in 2014, and, although his batting average dipped to 218 in 2015, Steve Pierce did manage to hit 15 home runs. Another way to look at it is that Steve Pierce put up a monster linear-weighted power index of 188 in 2014, well above the 150 needed to be considered elite. In fact, Jose Abreu, a $36 player in 2014 who slugged 36 home runs and batted 317 that season, finished with a linear-weighted power index of 185 in 2014, three points lower than Steve Pierce at 188. 
In 2015, despite the low batting average, 218, Steve Pierce fished with a higher linear weighted power index, 129, than Albert Pujols at 125, who hit 40 home runs and 602 at-bats. Of course, we're not, and I repeat not, saying that Steve Pierce is more valuable than Jose Abreu or even Albert Pujols. But we are saying that Steve Pierce, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. In addition, we are saying that Steve Pierce, with a career linear-weighted power index of 119, has demonstrated above-average ability to hit for power. Maybe Steve Pierce, with a .232 batting average on balls in play in 2015, was just unlucky last year. Speaking of unlucky, did you know that 26-year-old Colorado Rockies starting pitcher Tyler Chatwood, who underwent his second Tommy John surgery in July of 2014, forcing him to miss the entire 2015 season, has, upon his return, posted a 309 ERA through seven starts for the Rockies? But in Colorado, that's only part of the story. <laughs> oh, not Trevor's story. Not this time. This story is as different as night and day. Literally. Through seven starts, which is still a pretty small sample size, Tyler Chatwood is 1-3 with a 564 ERA in four night games and undefeated with a 3-0 record with a .42 ERA in three day games. Not to mention he is a 7.88 ERA at home in Colorado and a .33 ERA on the road. Those are some pretty extreme splits. However, a closer look shows that if we remove two bad games, both at home, where Tyler Chatwood gave up five earned runs and six innings against the Giants on April 12th, and six earned runs and six innings to the Diamondbacks on May 9th, did you know that Tyler Chatwood's ERA would be a mere 114 for the season? But, minus those two hiccups, is that performance sustainable? A closer look shows that Tyler Chatwood's strand rate, at 79%, is excellent, but dangerously close to the 80% that points to an artificially low ERA. In other words, he might be getting lucky. Although a 6.2 DOM is approaching an elite level, at 7, as 2.3 control rate and 2.5 command ratio are already there, Tyler Chatwood's projected 410 XERA for 2016 suggests a major change, not for the better, is on the way. Then again, looking at 53% ground ball rate when compared to his 273 batting average on balls in play, or 27% hit rate, it's obvious that Tyler Chatwood could produce more quality starts in the near future, especially when he's pitching on the road and during the day going forward. Nevertheless, maybe more than luck is involved, especially if you pick up Steve Pierce and Tyler Chatwood, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for our weekend pitcher matchups report. We rate matchups on a scale centered on zero. Pitchers rated one or higher are strong bets for you to start. Those under minus one are strong bets for you to sit. In between 1 and minus 1, you'll have to gauge that based on your own risk tolerance and league context. 
Here with a look at a Saturday National League game with Giants right-hander Jake Peavy against Arizona lefty Patrick Corbin in Phoenix, a Sunday American League game featuring Angel Southpaw Hector Santiago in Seattle against righty King Felix Hernandez, and two other pitcher matchups is BaseballHQ.com pitching matchups analyst Greg Fishwick. Our theme for this weekend is what's wrong with these guys. We'll look at four matchups between eight starting pitchers who have thus far failed to meet our expectations for the 2016 season. Our American League battle on Saturday is in Baltimore's hitter haven of Camden Yards, where the Tigers' struggling Anibal Sanchez has a matchup rating of minus 169 for his scheduled start against the O's' Mike Wright, who has a matchup rating of minus 024. Detroit has a losing record despite the third softest strength of schedule in the early going. Against teams with records at or above 500, the Tigers have lost twice as many games as they've won. Baltimore has the best record in the majors at home and is fifth best against right-handers. Against teams under 500, the Orioles have won twice as many games as they've lost. And if that's not enough to make you stay away from Sanchez, consider these warning signs. In 37 innings pitched, he's walked 22. That's about twice as bad as the worst control rate Sanchez has shown since becoming a full-time starter in 2010. He's also never had a lower fastball velocity or swinging strike rate. Even after three PQS disaster zeros and three PQS twos, things could actually get worse. So now is the time to divest yourself of any shares in Anibal Sanchez. Mike Wright doesn't have much to recommend him either, except that he's on the better team. Even so, he's more risk than reward. Wright has put up three PQS Disaster 1s in five starts, but he does have a base performance value of 72. He might stay in the game long enough to get you a win if your other pitching category statistics can withstand an onslaught. On Sunday in the American League, we could look at either Sonny Gray or Felix Hernandez, as both have two PQS Disasters in their past five starts and a disturbing PQS dominant to PQS Disaster ratio of 14% dominant to 29% disaster. We'll focus on King Felix because his underlying performance indicators are more alarming. Hernandez is at home in pitcher-friendly Safeco Field with a matchup rating of 067 to face the Halos' Hector Santiago, who has a matchup rating of minus 083. Only six teams have worse run differentials than the Angels, and only three teams have worse records against right-handers. Against teams at or above 500, the Anaheimers have lost twice as many games as they've won, and in their past 10 games, they're 2-8. Seattle has won 15 of its past 20, but that's with the softest strength of schedule so far this season. In his first four starts, Santiago had three PQS 3s and a perfect PQS 5, but since then he's thrown three PQS disaster zeros. His expected ERA is in its typical mid-fours range, so there's nothing new here despite the noise about his revamped off-season weight workouts. Santiago remains a high-risk, low-reward wildcard. As for King Felix, the chinks in his armor are many. In 44 innings pitched, he has 20 walks and 33 strikeouts for a control rate of 4-1, a dominance rate of 6-8, and a command ratio of 1-7, all career worsts. Hernandez's velocity is below 90 for the first time in his career, and his fortunate hit rate of 23% and strand rate of 87% give him a career-high expected ERA of 409 and a career-low BPV of 43. He should salvage this matchup against the ghostly Angels, but the future looks cloudy for Hernandez. 
In the National League this weekend, we could review either of San Francisco's struggling starters, Jake Peavy or Matt Cain. We'll pick Peavy and his matchup rating of minus 083 against the D-backs Patrick Corbin and his matchup rating of minus 133 for a Saturday game at the launching pad known as Chase Field in Phoenix. The Giants are a solid team with no outstanding strengths or weaknesses, but Arizona suffers from the second-worst home record and is below 500 versus teams at or above 500. Reports of Peavy's demise could be premature as a very unlucky hit rate of 41% and strand rate of 57% have combined to give him some zombie-like surface stats. Still, his expected ERA of 483 is on a five-year rise, and his base performance value of 71 would be his second lowest since his breakout campaign back in 2004. After that breakout season, he had single-digit negative roto values of minus $2 in 2010 and minus $5 in 2011, but PV is now at minus $22. The concern is justified. Patrick Corbin is not picking up where he left off after a surprisingly strong second-half return in 2015 from Tommy John surgery in early 2014. His 2016 sample is about half the size of his 2015 sample, Corbin is benefiting from a combination career-low hit rate of 27% and career-high strand rate of 75% that mask his career-high control rate of 2.5 and career-low dominance rate of 5.8. He has limited line drives and increased ground balls a bit, but his first pitch strike rate of 58% is below last year's promising 61%, not to mention 2013 70% prior to his Tommy John surgery. Corbin now has his first expected ERA of four or more, so his recovery is by no means progressing in a stair-step fashion. Avoid Corbin for now. And in our final matchup this weekend, we have the Sunday National League contest between two starting pitchers who are better than advertised. St. Louis's Mike Leake carries a matchup rating of minus 056 into pitcher-friendly Dodger Stadium against Alex Wood and his matchup rating of 025. The Cards have the second-best run differential in Major League Baseball, but against teams at or above 500, they have twice as many losses as wins. L.A. is only one win better against teams at or above 500. And though they will have played a couple more games at home by the time you hear this, as of this recording, the Dodgers are only 6-10 in Chavez Ravine. Brian Rudd just studied Mike Leake for his Facts and Flukes column, concluding that Leake's BPIs are all within range of his normal levels, except for an unlucky strand rate of 62%, which is 10 to 11 percentage points below his usual 72 to 73%. We can expect a turn toward more typical surface stats soon. Comparing the slow starts of Mike Leake's opponent this Sunday, Alex Wood, and the aforementioned Patrick Corbin in our May staff survey, our analysts thought Wood was more likely to recapture previous performance levels than Corbin. And Stephen Nickrand identified Wood's rebound potential in a late April column titled Early Season Surprises. Wood has pushed his ground ball percentage up to a career-best 56%, raised his first pitch strike rate to a career-best 64%, and lowered his expected ERA to 349. No need to wait and see with him. He's bouncing back already. So to avoid any unwanted early season surprises of your own, stay as far away as possible from Anibal Sanchez. Keep a safe distance from Hector Santiago. Wait and see with Patrick Corbin. Expect a return to mid-level performance from Mike Leake and a bit more than that from Alex Wood. Take a risk on Mike Wright or Jake Peavy only if you need wins and already have a strong foundation in your other pitching categories. And while King Felix Hernandez should handle his matchup this time around, 
Beware the Grim Reaper chasing him as well as Jake Peavy. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups analyst. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week, I want to talk about pitchers in the season that ended on April 30th. In last week's Master Notes, you may recall, I looked at the baseball season that started May 1st of last year and ended on April 30th of this year. It's six months of Major League Baseball, and I made some observation about hitters during that span. This week, I'm repeating the procedure but looking at pitchers, and I split them up into starters and relievers. I'd like to start with the starters. Just makes sense. Finding number one. If you think starters aren't getting deep into games, you're right. Among the 116 pitchers during the period who started every game they pitched, that is, no relief appearances, only three managed seven innings or more per start on average, Clayton Kershaw, Chris Sale, and Jake Arrieta. Corey Kluber, Dallas Keuchel, Zach Greinke, and Marcus Stroman were at 6.9, and the numbers start tailing off from there. At the bottom of the range, starters like Charlie Morton, Mike Pelfrey, Taylor Youngman, Jeremy Hellickson, Kyle Kendrick, Mike Bolsinger, Willie Peralta, and Joe Kelly were all under 5.5 innings per start. That alone should make owners wonder about their roster value, since their ratios are high, their strikeouts relatively low, except for Kelly, and their wins potential restricted. Finding number two. Just getting deep into games doesn't mean getting decisions. Since Kershaw and Sale were among the league leaders in innings per start, you might think they would also get more decisions. Not so. Yes, Kershaw was the depth leader, but he was just 66th on the list of decisions per start. He got a win or a loss in 70% of his starts, keeping company with Anthony DeSclafini and Nathan Eovaldi, both of whom were under six innings per start. Sale is down at 19th on the list. Arietta was also over seven innings per start and 11th on the list of decisions. The overall leaders in the category were Josh Tomlin and Dallas Keuchel. Both over 90% of their starts resulted in decisions. 18 more starters were at or over 80%, and 14 were under 60%, including C.C. Sabathia and Kyle Kendricks bringing up the rear, getting decisions in barely over half their starts. The correlation between innings per start and decisions per start is weakly positive. It was pretty common for a pitcher to be well up on the innings per start list and well down the decisions list, and vice versa. The situation is even more pronounced with wins per start. Just four pitchers, Marcus Stroman, Josh Tomlin, Arietta, and Steven Matz won 70% or more of their starts. Kershaw and Granke, despite sterling skills and performance measures, won just over half their starts. Sale and Jose Fernandez at 50%. And 11 pitchers who had ERAs below 3 and or whips below 1 had wins below 50% of their starts. My takeaway from all this is that wins are a dumb stat. Finding number 3. Wins may not be a dumb stat. The common beef about wins is that unskilled, lucky pitchers get too many of them, but in this period at least it wasn't necessarily so. The wins leader was Arietta, who had 24 wins against 5 losses in the season. Other top winners include most of the Cy Young ballot. Kershaw, Price, Bumgarner, Sale, Scherzer, Granke, yeah, some of them didn't have such high win percentages, but they had a lot of starts, and even at 50% wins you're going to get a lot of wins. The list of top winners also includes Colby Lewis, Colin McHugh, and Ruby De La Rosa, so there's clearly a substantial element of luck still involved here. 
Finding number four, complete games are vanishing. Arietta led the way with five complete games and five other pitchers, Kershaw, Bumgarner, Scherzer, Kluber, and the now-retired Mark Burley, had four apiece. Fifty-seven other pitchers threw at least one complete game. This is no surprise. The complete game has long been going the way of the Dodo, VCRs, and pop stars who can sing in tune. In 1980, 20% of all starts were complete games. The A's had three. Rick Langford had 28 complete games. Imagine that. Mike Norris had 24, and Matt Keogh had 20. By 1990, that complete game number had fallen to 10% of starts, 10 years later down to 5% of starts, and 10 years after that, the transformation was pretty much complete. Barely 3% of starts were completed, and last year the number was just over 2%. This last season, just 1%. Finding number 5, there were some surprises in ERA. ERAs keep dropping. In this current period, aggregate ERA was 393, half a run less than in 1996. 22 pitchers were under 3.00, triple the number of such pitchers 20 years ago. Same was true for pitchers between 3.01 and 4. The ERA leaders for the period start with Arietta at 162, with Kershaw in third at 196. In second, Give yourself a point if you said Rich Hill, whose astonishing April of this year lowered his ERA for the season to a few thousands less than Kershaw's. Other surprises, Jaime Garcia had a 268, Jose Quintana 276, Tyler Duffy of the Twins 290, ahead of Bumgarner and Sale, and Joe Ross had a 299. Probably the biggest surprise at the other end of the ERA list, Michael Pineda's 4.84, nearly two runs worse than his ex-ERA, and a run and a half over his ex-FIP and Sierra, two other skills-based ERA predictors. Finding number six, there were some whip surprises too. Like ERA, whip has been steadily tracking downward, with 26 starters in this last season under 1.10, compared with just five such pitchers in 2006. Ten starters in the period showcased whips under one, while just one such starter, Johan Santana, managed to get under that threshold ten years ago. Again, most of the names are whom we'd expect. Surprises in the top 20 included third-place Josh Tomlin at 086, narrowly lagging only Kershaw and Arietta. Hill's 095 was a surprise, of course, as was Drew Smiley's 103. Garcia, Jared Eikhoff, and Joe Ross also had admirably low whips. No surprises among the bottom 20, but up just a little higher on the list, we see such potential stars or highly thought of pitchers as Carlos Rodon, Doug Fister, and Martin Perez. Finding number seven, very few surprises among the overall strikeout leaders. Kershaw, Sales, Scherzer, Chris Archer, Bumgarner, Kluber, Arietta Price. There might be more surprises in who's not in the top tiers. Matt Harvey, for instance, was under 200 strikeouts, and Jeff Samarja was further down than Harvey. The top Dom guys, strikeouts per nine, pretty much followed the K list, with exceptions due to playing time. Rich Hill was number one at 12.0 strikeouts per nine, Jose Fernandez second at 11.5, but they had nine starts and 16 starts respectively during the season. Toward the bottom of the Dom list, one name really jumps out. Toronto rotation leader Marcus Stroman's Dom was a paltry 5.4 strikeouts per nine. He was one of just 28 qualifying starters who had Doms under six. Stroman's rate has been brought down by a 4.9 in April of this year after an already short low Dom run last year coming back from injury. 
While there is that explanation, however, owners with an interest in Stroman should monitor his DOM rate before making any decisions going forward, because 5.4, it ain't going to cut it in the long run. Let's move to the relievers and finding number eight. Your saves leader, who do you think? The answer, Mark Melanson. Melanson had 53 saves in the season just past, with a 188 ERA and an 087 whip. Five relievers had 40-plus saves. Kenley Jansen, Trevor Rosenthal, Sean Tolleson, Juris Familia, and Francisco Rodriguez. Interestingly, almost all these guys have been widely discussed as closers who are highly likely to lose their jobs. 11 relievers had 30-39 to 39 saves, and 6 more 20-29. to 29. Finding number 9. You know how all pitchers regress to a 70% strand rate? Not relievers. The median strand rate for the 129 qualifying relievers was 78%, and 46 different relievers were above 80%, led by Wade Davis at 93% and Chasen Shreve of the Yankees at 90%, and he can't even get in the late part of the game. Only 19 relievers were under 70%, and that list includes Fernando Salas, whose name gets bandied about every time the Angels' bullpen is discussed. Finding number 10. Yeah, like Wade Davis needed even more value. Ever since Ron Chandler developed the Lima plan, we've known that one of the hidden benefits of late-game relievers, even if they're not closing games, is that they can add a nice bundle of vulture wins to your stats, along with superb decimals, and sometimes even a useful number of strikeouts. Kevin Segrist of the Cardinals had 9 wins and 5 saves in 73 innings during our season, with a 2.32 ERA, 1.15 whip, and 90 strikeouts. Now injured, Keone Kalev, Texas, had eight wins, a couple of saves, and a 286-111 line with 72 strikeouts. The Orioles' tandem of Darren O'Day and Brad Brock had seven wins each, with whips right around one, and ERAs of 176 for O'Day and 219 for Brock. Wade Davis himself had 20 saves during the season and seven vulture wins, mostly because he was setting up for Greg Holland during the early part of the season. His decimals both under one, and he had 78 strikeouts. And by the way, I multiplied ERA and WHIP to make a new metric called ERAWP, pronounced EROP, and I took the top 50 EROP relievers, leaving out closers. Their aggregate ERA was 267, their aggregate WHIP 111, and medians were right in those same neighborhoods. Six non-saves relievers had EROPs under 2.0. Sean Kelly, Alex Wilson, O'Day, Dellen Batances, Joaquin Benoit, and Will Harris. Of these six, four had ERAs under two, and they all had whips of 101 or better. And of course, Batances' 136 strikeouts were more than 107 of the qualifying starters. Now, as with batters, looking at pitchers through the lens of an alternate season confirmed some ideas and revealed others. I like the idea of the EROP metric as a quick first-throw shortcut to ranking relievers. Might work for starters as well, I'll have to see. In the meantime, remember again the warning I gave last week during the hitters' discussion. All of these stats and metrics stabilize over different periods. A season, no matter how it's structured, seems like a long time, but for many stats, it's not long enough. The sample remains too small. For other metrics and stats, it's more than enough. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up.
Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 13th. Thanks very much for overcoming your Triskaidekaphobia and taking the time to download and listen to show number 24 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Friday edition of our show. From USA Today, it was senior fantasy editor Steve Gardner, a great guy, and he always has tons of interesting insights into fantasy baseball. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky, And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our feature guest expert will be Jeff Erickson from Rotowire and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.